Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Playmakers Corner Podcast, episode 201, featuring myself, Cody Stoffer. We are also going to have some word from Coach V, and also I am going to recap some notes from a game that Gideon went to. So if you're not familiar with this, that's the PMC cast here. Gideon mainly covering things up north, Simon mostly things in the south for the most part, and then myself mostly in the metro area, but you will see some overlap of some different areas today. On this recap, we are going to talk about scores from this past weekend. We are also going to be talking about power rankings as well as playmakers of the week. So just stay tuned for all of that info. And let's go ahead and jump into it here. On Thursday, the 8th, I did not make it to any games. However, Columbine did beat Cherokee Trail 35-7 here. Flatirons Academy scored a four-foot win over Jefferson. Northfield continues their dominance here, beating Riverdale Ridge 27-11. Simon will catch us up on the Arvada West Horizon game following this other side of the recap. Heritage gets their first dub of the season over Pueblo Central, 47-6. Liberty outlasts Sierra, 26-20. Silver Creek avenges last week's loss with a big win over Boulder, 27-10. Eagle Crest narrowly outlasts Highlands Ranch here. You look at their you know scoreboard here, and Diego Kearns with another 112 yards and a score. Eagle Crest scores just six points to Highlands Ranch, eight. You know, Highlands Ranch getting that two-point conversion in the fourth quarter to try and make this a three-point game. But Eagle Crest holds on to win this game. Once again, just a nice combination of athletes making big plays. Diego with a rushing touchdown. Peyton Taylor with a kickoff return for a touchdown being a huge deal. And Logan Ryan receiving a touchdown. They really have got to figure out these PATs because this game is way closer than it probably should have been. Uh, PAT-wise, that is. Broomfield with another massive win, this time over Vista Peak Prep. We see a little bit more action from C.T. Worley here at quarterback, who does get to go four for four for, you know, 47 yards, but it's always good to get that experience because Cola Crew already threw for over 300 yards and four touchdowns. It's really good to see the diversity of the rushing attack and the passing attack see for this Broomfield rushing game. You know, Ryland Bomer is probably the spearhead of it, rushing for 95 yards and two scores. But I mean, overall, as a team, they're running for 7.4 yards per carry, still ran for four touchdowns. Through the air, you know, you had three, four, five, six, seven, eight different guys catch a pass. That's good, you know, versatility, and that will help them out, especially because next week they have their biggest game of the season. Taverns Jefferson scores a win over Greeley West on the heels of an excellent rushing attack. You have Haralambopoulos here rushing for 125 yards on 25 carries, but Jake Tapia taking the show here, 20 carries for 208 yards and four of TJ's scores here. Furthermore, you have Windsor pulling off what some might call an upset win over Fort Collins, 27 to 21, and they do so on the heels of a great rushing attack that had over 400 yards, 371 of those yards coming from senior running back Jaden Thomas, who also ran for all four of Windsor's scores. Do keep his name in mind as we will be talking about Playmaker of the Week later. Prospect Ridge Academy captures their first dub over the new program, Timnith, here on the heels of, you know, some solid performances on the defensive end for the most part. You have a few guys here in Brady McKenney here as a sophomore collecting uh, 12 total tackles and four of those for loss. Chase Schaefer 
making some noise here with 12 tackles, two for loss, a sack, a hurry, a pick six, mind you, which, you know, could be huge momentum wise. And then also a fumble recovery. So Chase Schaefer going to be on that docket for talking about playmakers of the week for week three here on the 2A level. In other news, Yuma absolutely blows Banning Lewis Academy out of the water here. 49-0. Just a lot of great contributors here running for over 255 yards. The defense forcing a ton, a ton of turnovers here as they do intercept Banning Lewis Academy four separate times. And they also recover five fumbles, it looks like. So they went absolutely ballistic. Shout out to Damon Hernandez here who had an interception, a forced fumble, and a fumble recovery. Not to mention some of the damage that he was able to do on offense. But, uh, you know, this Yuma team continually has, you know, surprised. Did they finally get a very impressive win over a solid Banning Lewis team? And you will be seeing Yuma in our top 10 for the power rankings. In other news, you know, Lutheran does take care of business against Discovery Canyon with a convincing 50-0 win to maintain their status as one of the powerhouses in 3A. Thunder Ridge with a win over Lakewood. Smoky Hill gets a dub over Overland. Overland here. Green Mountain continues their win streak with a 31-6 win over Mountain View. Littleton absolutely going ballistic in this game against Alameda, beating them 74 to nothing and not even needing that many yards to do so. Bryson uh, obviously getting 155 yards and five rushing touchdowns. Great game for him. And, uh, you know, overall as a unit, very balanced attack, but just a massive dominant win for Littleton High School as they remain undefeated. But that probably does it for the overall Thursday action. I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Coach V to tell you about our game between Horizon and A-West. What's good, y'all? Welcome back to the Playmakers Corner Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Simon Voyanos, and I'm here to talk about the Arvada West versus Horizon game that happened last Thursday here on September 8th, 2022, over at the NACC, or uh, actually NAAC, my bad. And so let's go ahead and hop into this one. So to start the game, Horizon would actually receive first now this kick return wasn't great it was actually dropped they eventually picked it up and returned it to about the 10 but honestly not much was able to go here not the greatest start here um i mean birch on first down he finds velasquez on a nice throw to go ahead and get them a first down on the out route but after that you know they weren't quite able to connect on a couple more throws here um it was third and ten after two bad runs, and so after that, they ba- that drive basically stalled out, and they had to punt. And Arvada West would take over on the thirty-six. Now Arvada West, they try to get something going, but you know some early game jitters uh, just wasn't working out. You had a drop pass there, had a couple incompletions. They did take a shot downfield to uh, Witherspoon, I want to say, in 101, but it was good coverage, so it was incomplete, and so they would eventually punt as well, and Horizon would take over on the 40 end. On this drive, this is where they really got something going here, and so they had a nice short pass and an end around to make it third and two. Then they get a nice run on an RPO to get them a first down and across midfield for the first time that day for any team um, for that matter couple plays later it's third and five but they go ahead and find the guy landon loomis on a nice little screen route 
after that, uh, by the way, he gets the first down on that nice little screen route. But after that, they pass it over the middle and get another consecutive first down for them. But unfortunately, before they can run a play after uh, that one there, there's a false start. So it makes it first and 15. But no worries here. Alex Blaze Birch goes in, makes it happen, scrambles, make it a little bit more manageable second and nine. Then after that, he goes ahead, and on the next play, he scrambles around, uh, very Johnny Manziel-esque, and finds a Lucas Wilt on a nice throw for another first down. And that's kind of, you know, that's getting this team going here. They got some rhythm here. And so, with that rhythm, Alex Birch finds his running back, I believe, Velasquez, for the touchdown and the horizon lead. But they do not get the extra point. Uh, it's no good, but they do have the lead 6-0 with about two minutes left here in the first quarter. Now, Arvada West, they're trying to get something going here. They do get a first down, um, throwing it to Gomez, number 27 there. But an incompletion and a stuff run will eventually bring up the end of the quarter and also bring up third and 11 to start the second quarter for Arvada West. To start the first quarter or second quarter here, uh, Ethan Cook finds his guy Witherspoon over the middle who battles through a couple defenders, breaks a couple tackles, and gets the first down, plus gets them across the midfield for the first time this game. Well, a couple plays later, it's third and seven. Eventually, they make it third and 12, uh, not because the play got blown up or anything crazy like that, but the flag was thrown for an illegal shift, so it would be third and 12, and they could not quite get it done, and so that drive eventually dies after um, kind of a big penalty there. Now, Horizon, they have a chance to extend their lead. There's about 10 minutes left. But a costly holding penalty makes it first and long. They had to go half the distance to the goal line. So that's how you know they're kind of backed up into their own end zone. And things got worse. <laughs> things definitely got worse here. As Vince Vigil, number 10, made a fantastic interception. Uh, all fingertips interception, by the way. And he's a linebacker. And he would go ahead and return that to the house for a touchdown. And I don't think it was really Alex Birch's fault on the throw. It was just a very, very good interception. So there you go there. Um, and excuse me, he doesn't return it for a touchdown, but he gets really close to returning it. Like literally on the one yard line. And it's Ethan Cook that would actually get the touchdown here. We go ahead, put a move on a defender, uh, split him, and walks in for a touchdown. And the PAT is good, so Arvada West takes a 7-6 lead just like that. On the next drive, Horizon, they're struggling, you know, can't find too much going here in the run game, and they do have a couple incompletions, and so they go through and out, uh, basically there. And so they go ahead and punt it, but Arvada West, you know, they got Tate Deal back there, the speedster, the athlete, and he goes ahead and fields his punt, and he takes it 67 yards to the house, responding right away and making good use of that three and out that Arvada West's defense gave them. And with that, they go ahead and take a 14-6 lead with 7 minutes and 58 seconds left here in this game. Now Horizon, they're trying to respond back. They don't want to find themselves in too deep a hole. And so here's what happens. Alex Birch on a short throw goes ahead and gets them a first down, gets them some rhythm, settles them down a little bit. After that, Alex Birch, he throws the ball deep, and it's Loomis who comes down with it, their star receiver. But unfortunately, an illegal formation would erase that play and make it first and 15. 
But no worries, number 15 for Horizon gets a huge 15 plus yard run for the first down and gets them across midfield. And so they're going here. But unfortunately, another penalty, another false start makes it second and 15. And that's after an incompletion on first down. And so penalties really hurting Horizon here. And then on top of that, you know, Birch, he uh, aims at a receiver over the middle. The ball probably could have been caught, to be honest with you, but instead it's tipped up. And number four, Aiden Gunther, uh, at least I believe that's how you say that, goes at an interception for Arvada West. And so they take over on the 33 with about 3 minutes, 50 seconds left. And, you know, this Arvada West offense are going to take advantage of every time they get the ball because that's how explosive they are. And so Ethan Cook dials it up, finds number two, Yancy Alvino, on a deep shot, about 20-ish yards for a first down. And it also puts them in the red zone on that play. And then right after that, Ethan Cook drops back and he throws a beautiful throw, a strike to Drew Martinez for a 25-yard touchdown and extending the Arvada West lead 21-6 with three minutes left in this game. At this point, it the game's getting away from Horizon and so you could definitely feel the urgency here, but unfortunately, they just can't find much. I mean... Alex Birch, he does find his guy Lucas Wilt over the middle for a first down, so that gets them going. Then Birch, he does scramble out and finds Loomis again for a 20-plus yard gain, but this time it's not taken away. But unfortunately, just a bad mistake here. Uh, Birch, he just throws a, a, just an ill-advised uh, throw here, ill-advised Ill decision to number 20, Tegan Shots for another interception. And so with that Arvada West, they do have the ball here. They try to score, you know, and whatnot, but this defense comes up big. Uh, well, Landon Loomis comes up big. You know, Ethan could try to take a shot into the end zone. Was a little ambitious, not gonna lie. It was in triple coverage, and it was uh, Loomis who would go ahead and intercept that one and end the drive, end the half here, kind of stopping some bleeding here before it got out of control for Horizon. And so at this point, it's 21 to 6. But on the first play of the first drive, uh, Arvada West takes over, all right, and it's Tate Deal who gets the handoff, and he goes 64 yards to the house making it a 28-6 lead with about 11 minutes, 48 seconds left in this game. Now, you know, Horizon, they're not quite out of it, but it's not looking good at all. And so they try to get something going. They do get a first down with Velasquez. But after that, a huge sack by number 13 on Arvada West makes it a really tough third and 17. And so eventually Horizon is forced to punt it. And that would kind of kill that drive. Well, it would kill their drive there. And so, you know, Arvada West, they take over, you know, and uh, they they do throw. Well, Ethan Cook, he finds uh, number five, his receiver for a long touchdown. But unfortunately uh, for Arvada West, but fortunately for Horizon, a penalty takes that away. A couple plays later, they are forced to punt here. But Arvada West, you know, the, they're playing good defense at this point. They're feeling really confident. And they, uh, once again, get a huge sack on third down, I believe. Um, I think it was third and six when they got a huge sack. And that was number 10, Vince Vigil, who got a huge one there for this Arvada West defense with about less than a minute uh, left in the third. You know, a lot of clock being used here. And so Arvada West would take over. 
Um, and they would hand it off, and then after that, it would be the fourth quarter. And in the fourth quarter, this is where the game just kind of got away from Horizon. This is where I feel like Arvada West really just slammed the door on them, um, if you didn't think they did before. And it was number 23, Jaden Green, who gets a big 20-plus yard run to get them across midfield, setting up this next touchdown, where Ethan Cook takes a shot to number one, Drew Martinez, who goes ahead, puts this one away, and catches a nice 30-ish yard touchdown. And with that, they take a 35-6 lead uh, with about 11 minutes, 44 seconds here in this game. Horizon, they would score one more touchdown here uh, in this game. Kind of in garbage time, though. But still a touchdown. And so the final score of this game, 35-13. to Arvada West really just dominating here. Taking advantage of all the opportunities they had to score. Ethan Cook looked good. This offense looked good. You know, a lot of players uh, contributed. Tate Deal had a pretty good game with his return and his run. You know, and so a lot of good things for Arvada West here as they improve uh, to a winning record, I believe, here and drop Horizon. So there you go there. Thank you, Coach V, for catching us up on that. And now we are in the thick of it with the Friday football scores here. Just going to kind of go through, make some notes of some stuff. We did attend two games as a podcast this weekend. On Friday, So, you know, I will be recapping the Pine Creek Vista Ridge game following this. And then I will be going through Gideon's notes on the Wellington versus Sterling game. This is our first time seeing Wellington, who is a revived football program. And, uh, you know, going to just keep an eye on some of the ballers there. But in eye-opening way, you know, Dakota Ridge, they bounce back from that very tough loss against Columbine, and they show that within 4A, they are still a force to be reckoned with. This passing game finally gets some ground here. Blake Palladino going 13 of 19 for 149 yards and four scores. And, you know, that passing attack opens up the rush game a little bit here. Noah Triplett with two scores of his own. Palladino also finding the end zone with his legs as well as this unit goes for nearly 450, maybe even 450 total yards of offense, which is just insane. Uh, Walker Mensch on the receiving end of two of those touchdowns, by the way. Brandon Miller and Bobby Levin finding some action in there as well. This is over Mesa Ridge. They win 56-30 to and ultimately, you know, finally put together a very solid game to keep their spot, at least for me, inside the top 10, just based off of strength of schedule and whatnot. Man, they really scored eight touchdowns out here. But... Moving forward, Lincoln with a win over Denver West, 14-10. You take wins where you can get them. Steamboat Springs, 29-zil over Middle Park. Devlin with a pretty solid win over Faith Christian, 42-7. Burlington finds themselves in the win column, getting a win over Goodland High School located in Kansas. So that is an out-of-state win for this Colorado, you know, box state pride, 33-16. Stanley Lake takes care of business against 5A Westminster, 54-12, absolutely mauling them. And speaking of M, Monarch here outlasts Centaurus 17-13 for a win of their own. Frederick did go to Nebraska to play against Scotts Bluff and unfortunately came out 20-43. Holyoke finally gets themselves in the win column 46-20 to even out that out-of-state record. In big 5A news, Arapaho loses to Regis Jesuit 23-10 in a game where Regis ran the ball pretty well and Arapaho just 
cannot find the consistency on offense, but they do score when Charlie Eckhart has a 100-yard kickoff return. So good old Charlie still finding ways to score for this Warriors squad carrying that offense. Doherty with a big win over Coronado, 42-17. Fossil Ridge survives Brighton at home with a 15-8 win. That is something to definitely keep a note on if you are Fossil Ridge. Loveland pummels Pomona, 42-0. Thompson Valley beats Berthet, 22-6. In what was one of the best rivalry games last year between Fort Morgan and Roosevelt, it does not quite live up to that as Roosevelt takes care of business at home against a depleted Fort Morgan squad, 49 to nothing. Basically, everyone getting their turns, scoring touchdowns. Bronco Hartson getting it done on the ground a few times. Xavier Ramirez having a good game himself. So, you know, this is a very balanced Roosevelt team that will remain at number one for me. Inner city rivalry, Grand Junction Central beats Grand Junction 25 to 13. But moving forward, uh, North Glen beats Thornton 52 to 14 and a big win for that program that is also, you know, kind of a crosstown rivalry kind of thing. TCA or beats Alamosa on the road, actually, 42 to 14 in a big 2A win. Cherry Creek beats Chatfield 25. And in a huge bounce back game here, Fountain Fort Carson pummels Pueblo West 40 to nothing. And, you know, this Fountain Fort Carson team, they were dealt kind of a shorthand here, as mentioned by Code Fee last week, when they had to finish a game at 3 in the afternoon following driving back and forth, back and forth from Fountain Fort Carson, or Fountain, I should say. And uh, boy, did they put everyone on notice with a win like this, dominating on both sides of the ball against a very solid Pueblo West team. Going further down, Buena Vista in a huge 1A matchup outlasts or survives a attempted Centauri comeback here. Looking here, Centauri, they were down 6-14 to heading into this final frame, and they actually scored 12 points in that final quarter but Buena Vista scores 10 to outlast them. Hayden Camp with a pretty solid game here. 10 of 18, two touchdowns, no interceptions, and another 40 yards on the ground. Jacob Phelps himself also having a solid game, rushing for a touchdown, 72 yards, and also getting an interception on the defensive side of the ball. Caleb Camp, the camp-to-camp -camp connection here, is looking pretty good, especially here in this matchup against Centauri. Caleb recording seven receptions for 96 yards and two scores in a very solid performance by a receiver on this you know 1a level that doesn't normally see performances quite like that but furthermore uh fairview does not defend home turf against valor christian valor wins 38 to 15 in a, another big time 5a matchup ralston valley goes to grandview here and beats them in what was a very back and forth game. I mean, Ralston Valley here jumps out to a 20 to nothing lead in the first quarter before Grandview over the next two quarters blanks Ralston Valley and scores 21 points of their own to have the lead heading into the fourth. And then Ralston Valley wakes back up from their nap and scores 13 points in the final frame to win this one 33 to 21. Looks like the passing game wasn't massively effective as they do complete less than 50% of their passes. But Logan Madden, the junior here, does throw for three touchdowns, no interceptions, and he also rushes for a score as well. And then overall, this Ralston Valley team, I think that they were fairly balanced, you know, on the ground. Uh, Deano Bonello or Bonello rushes for 153 yards on 11 yard per carry average, putting up a monster showing here and then in the past game only two guys catching passes liam Beatty and josh rylos here uh combining for six receptions and th those three scores so 
big game out of those Ralston Valley guys to, you know, pull off what I would consider an upset on the road. Um, and then, you know, this defensive backfield had a decent showing as well, having an interception and Jason Tommy, one of our watch list guys with a pass deflection. But man, uh, Ralston Valley with a huge up and down game, same as Grandview here. And ultimately, I mean, they end up just scoring the points in the final frame where it arguably matters most here. And uh, Grandview, you know, I don't think that this is necessarily a bad loss. There is something to be learned from here in this fourth quarter, but uh, you know, just keep your heads up and keep on pushing. In other news, you know, Florence, they outlast Pagosa Springs here, 22 to 19 to win a very close one. Pooter rides the wave of that win at home last week over Castleview to beat Prairie View, 22-6. Niwot gets a dub over Skyview, 15-6. Salida in what is maybe potentially looking to be a turnaround season wins against Rye 24 to 14 Pueblo East with a big time win over La Junta 38 to 13 at home Zayden Stevens absolutely going ballistic here throwing three scores to no interceptions and tacking on another 37 yards on the ground center beats Peyton in what I would say is a huge upset here and man they could not have done it without Hey Seuss Valadez here who throws three touchdowns throws a pick but throws three touchdowns on 28 pass attempts and also rushes for a touchdown and boy Kale Ruggles here his receiver went absolutely insane oh going for 172 yards and two touchdowns on 12 receptions Peyton here they still fought pretty good you have uh Rias Trumbo here who did run for 119 yards and two of Peyton's scores but ultimately, I think that some turnovers end up costing Peyton this game as they do throw a pick to Via Gomez. But uh, yeah, you know, I mean, Peyton, they still had two fumble recoveries themselves. They just have to capitalize on those turnovers and whatnot. But uh, yeah, you know, center survives this game against Peyton and uh, pulls off the upset dub 28 to 20 on the 1A level. Speaking of 1A news, Ray unfortunately loses their first game of the year against what is a highly praised Scott team. I did talk to, you know, or I guess this is Scott City, Kansas here. They're off to a 2-0 start. They had a big win against Cimarron, 42-0 to start their season. So Ray does lose a game here. And uh, we'll drop a little bit, but we're not going to punch them too bad. Fruit of Monument with a dominant win, 35 to nothing over Skyline on the road. With a long car trip ahead of them, they persevere and they get the dub over Skyline here. And uh, we'll be seeing a bump up in our rankings for sure. Durango dominates 55-0. We will hear from Gideon, as I said, on that Wellington game. So stay tuned for that. Cheyenne Mountain with a bounce back here. 21-0 win over Canyon City. Palmer Ridge wins the battle for Palmer over Lewis Palmer, 58-17, as they should. The Pinnacle getting a win over Clear Creek here. Congratulations to this Pinnacle squad who, you know, has not had a lot of luck here out there in Federal Heights. But they uh, persevere to get what I think is their first win in a few years, actually. So that was much needed, and it was a dominant one as they, like I said, trounced Clear Creek, 54-6. Montrose beats Erie 49-40. to Erie and Montrose both have had a tough schedule to start the season. They are both at 1-2, and two, but, uh, you know, Montrose outlasts Erie this time to avenge their playoff loss from last year. 
Summit beats Conifer 37-14. Douglas County bounce back win over Rangeview 35-12 to remain kind of in that mid-tier. Mountain Vista continues their win streak here with a big win over Chap. Meeker gets a bounce back win over Aspen 41-14. Wiggins bounces back over Rocky Ford as they should. Legacy with a surprising 31-0 win over Rocky Mountain. Rocky Mountain has to show something if they want to be taken a bit more seriously here, or at least as high as I had them rated heading into the season. Glenwood Springs beats Rifle 34-27. Evergreen gets a win over Eagle Valley 48-0. Aurora Central goes all the way down to Falcon. I actually passed this Aurora Central bus on the highway back up from the Springs because I was in the Springs on Friday as well, and I drove by a bus. Aurora Public Schools what game was that oh yeah, yeah the aurora central game so i'm glad that you know their bus ride was a joyous one on the way back from falcon otherwise that would have been a long bus ride with an l legend here continues their win streak win streak 49 to 21 and has a huge game against one of our top rated teams in ponderosa here and man if they could win that they will be sitting pretty good looking at these standings monte vista outlast gunnison 18 to 10 Basalt continues their win streak. The Academy takes care of business over Elizabeth here as, you know, they just clamp down on defense, only allowing seven points to this Elizabeth team, and they put up 28 of their own. And they had eight tackles for loss. Corbin Miller leading the way with two sacks, and they forced a lot of, oh my gosh, they forced five fumbles and recovered five fumbles. Dude, what is going on there? Elizabeth, protect the football, but kudos to the Academy on their big 2A win. Denver South beats Longmont 58-35. Bear Creek outlasts Kennedy 14-7. Denver North with a win over Wheat Ridge. And Mullen not with a ton of luck as they went out to California. But that does it for our regular Friday recaps. And let me go ahead and talk about the game Pine Creek versus Vista Ridge. So as we got there, come to find out, there's a little bit of a lightning delay, but Pine Creek is actually hosting Vista Ridge, their crosstown rival, on homecoming week. Wow. So you knew that this was going to be an intense game. The energy here in the stadium was pretty solid, honestly. And, you know, Pine Creek, shout out to that halftime show that went on for like 10 minutes of fireworks. There's, there's something about that that made it very exciting. But... Let's go ahead and dive into this. Pine Creek does start on their own 48-yard line, and you could tell early that they are trying to assert their dominance. They're trying to be physical here, and they come out running the ball hard and strong. JoJo Garnett doing all that he can for this Vista Ridge defense, meeting Mason Miller at the line and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, they're playing pretty good. They start off with a little screen here, Pine Creek does, that does get tackled for only two yards. But then Mason Miller hurdles a defender and breaks it down the right sideline for a 34-yard touchdown run. And I just put that they run quick and hard for an early score. They score this first time in under two minutes. There's still over 10 minutes. There's still four numbers up on the scoreboard here as far as time left for this game. So, you know, they come out early, swinging hard and often. On the next drive, Vista Ridge, they do get the ball here, and they kick it. Uh, Pine Creek kicks it out of the back of the end zone. Simon noted, ah, they learned from kicking to BB Hill since apparently he torched them on special teams last year. So Vista Ridge, they want to establish a run game here and they're running. I mean, they ran the ball 30 times and they passed the ball 30 times. So 
you literally could not ask for a more balanced offense and on the day they averaged around four yards per carry and it starts off with this drive running it over and over and over again getting seven here rushing for a first pine creek they do eventually buckle down here brett alvey blows up a rush here on third and eight and um you know forces a fourth and eight in which vista rich has to punt I say that, you know, they're trying to establish a run game, but with a handful of penalties, it's kind of like having a car up on a lift. The car is going 45 miles an hour, but it's not going anywhere. So, you know, Vista Ridge shooting themselves in the foot a few times to start this game out. Pine Creek, they do start with the ball on the 46 before a holding penalty pushes them back to first and 23, which is just a huge pushback here. They try a mid-screen here. Vista Ridge blows it up. They get a skinny dive play for a few... Uh, and then on third and 14, Cam Coop, you know, he try, he keeps a play alive after 13 comes off unblocked and he makes a nice pass, but it's just not quite enough. And they eventually have to punt. I just put that an early penalty and a great play by 28 on Vista Ridge here. I mean, he's the one who blew up that mid screen and he impressed on this night. And he's the one who, you know, should be given a lot of credit here for forcing a Pine Creek punt. Vista Ridge. They get their, the ball on their own 44-yard line. They have a quick hitch to Hills in the middle that picks up eight. Then, you know, they try and run the ball here, but number 64 on Pine Creek absolutely just blows this play up. I want to say that that's okay. That's Robol Sreynoso. Oh, my Lord. I'm really sorry. I know that I did not get that name right. But kudos to him for blowing up the play, meaning at the line of scrimmage. Eventually, Vista Ridge finds himself in a fourth and one situation before Hill here, the running back, uh, Nation or Nation Hall, I should say, my bad, uh, gets pushed ahead for the first down. On the 29 going in, you know, this Pine Creek defensive line, they start getting a push here. Dorman has to take a quick swing pass for a short gain, but then he hangs tight here. He maneuvers the pocket. I mean, this is just one of the best plays I've seen. This is why he's a four-star guy. Really smooth athlete. His hips are taking him exactly where he needs to go. He moves up in the pocket, then steps left. Then he sees a gap, moves right. He's rolling out right. He's directing Dooley where he wants him to be. And he finds Keyshawn Dooley on a small little hitch route. And Dooley takes it up the sideline and makes it to the pylon here, making it a 7-7 game here early on. Now, drive summary, I say that they get nice morale points for running with very strong power and that uh, Dorman's quick game is looking real nice. In the scoring play, Dorman makes a play that probably no other Colorado quarterback can make, moving the pocket, directing receiver, resulting in a score, and uh, kudos to Keyshawn Dooley on the run after catch. Now, Pine Creek gets this next drive on their own 30-yard line. JoJo Garnett meets Mason Miller at the line of scrimmage and can't be shook off before, you know, he misses a tackle that, you know, eventually Pine Creek advanced to the 35-yard line. On third and five, they try a quick screen, but it, it gets snuffed. That's the end of the first quarter, and my first quarter summary here was Pine Creek starts off hot, and Vista Ridge initially comes out shaky, but settles down to clog the PC offense two drives in a row. Now, on the, at the top of the second quarter, Cannon Budge gets the direct snap here on a fake punt and gets a first down run. This is absolutely massive momentum-wise. This is what this rivalry is all about, and this is why, you know, these coaches get to do what they do, and uh, Todd Miller, why he's been able to hold down that spot so long. This is an interesting call before, you know, they have a short run, and then, you know, core 
uh, gets his time to shine. He's a sophomore tailback, I want to say Jonathan Core is. And, you know, he does get a handful of carries this game, 11 for 81 yards, as a matter of fact, and has himself a pretty solid appearance. But, um, you know, Core, he gets a first down. Then on first and 10 on the 40-yard line going in, Mason Miller does it again, ripping off one on the left this time. I'm honestly kind of questioning Vista Ridge's effort on this play. It looks like they gave up on trying to catch him. And Mason Miller at this point with both of Pine Creek scores, they are up 14-7. Vista Ridge, they get the ball here. Dorman holds on to the ball and he gets stripped by Brett Alvey expertly, but a holding penalty on the Pine Creek secondary gives Vista Ridge a second chance here. So they run off tackle on the next play for seven on second and three. They rush for a first down here. Dorman underthrows down the right sideline. If he connects on this pass to Dooley, it's probably a touchdown. But then on fourth and seven, they have a delay of game and they punt and then they try and pin. This guy has an excellent opportunity to grab the ball at like the three or four yard line even. But he waits too long for the bounce, and he can't recover it until it gets to the white stripe. So that's a huge missed opportunity, I think, for Vista Ridge on special teams and just being a little too greedy. So Pine Creek, on their very first run from the 20-yard line, they get a huge run to the 46-yard line. And then Core bounces outside for 15, but a penalty pushes it back to the 50-yard line. We see our first reverse from this Pine Creek squad as they get it to Budge, who gains 12. And then on, you know, a couple more runs happen. Second and eight, JoJo Garnett back making plays at the line. And then on third and 10, with one timeout remaining for Pine Creek, they run the ball and then it is swallowed up. Drive summary, I say another drive stalls out after a penalty. Penalties seem to be the, you know, momentum kryptonite for both teams tonight, but especially Pine Creek, who, you know, at this point probably should have another interception. Fisher Ridge, they get the ball on their own 20-yard line. Quick hitch to Hills, outside power. Uh, number 65 on that Vista Ridge line did a great job sealing the edge and allowing the running back to get to the first down. Then there's another quick hitch to Hills. Dooley, I don't know what this throw is between Dorman to Dooley. I don't know if it's a miscommunication or if he was trying to draw a pass interference, but the ball is intercepted. And, you know, I think that my drive summary, Vista Ridge, they're showing immense patience on offense with the short gains. But a miscommunication and overcommitment to this throw lands in the PC defense's hands. I want to say, I want to say it was Nicholson on the interception. Yeah, I'm pretty, yeah, it was Nicholson on the interception. So there's that. Pine Creek, they have the ball in the 35. And, uh, you know, Coop, Cameron Cooper takes a deep shot that should have drawn a flag, honestly, because the defender was just waving his hands. He had his back to the ball. But it hits the turf, and on the next play, Coop hits Jeremy Lydiot in stride for a pickup of 13 or so. But then this game takes a short break. I don't, I couldn't catch which number it was, but whatever Vista Ridge player was stretchered off, we obviously hope that he is okay and healthy. Moving forward, Mason Miller gets a big run on third and three, and then a penalty at the end of the play pushes the ball all the way to the three-yard line. Miller tries to get an easy run for the score, but two penalties uh, end up resulting in first and seven. And, you know, a run gets stuffed before. On the next play, Cam Coop high points his guy here. Kai, I want to say it's Getz. Maybe it's Goatsy. But, uh, you know, that will be Cam Coop's only passing touchdown of the night. And uh, Goatsy makes an incredibly 
athletic grab here to give Pine Creek the two-score lead. Fisher Ridge, they get the ball back here. They have a run for a first, run for six. They take a timeout. Dorman throws it to Dooley for a first down. They have a strike to the seam for a first, but a holding penalty puts them back at the 46. They take a timeout, and then they throw a screen. And that brings us to halftime. At halftime here, for Vista Ridge, I said a patient offense is cool and all, but it isn't going to win you this football game where your only saving grace has been Pine Creek's own mistakes and flags. And then for Pine Creek, I put, if there weren't so many flags on them, this game wouldn't be as close. It doesn't really seem that they have an answer to Vista Ridge's quick game, but bend, don't break is working so far. Now, they are sporting a 21-7 lead. They, you know, did their whole homecoming, who's the king and queen and whatnot. Uh, shout out to that kid who had his friends instead of his parents. We thought that was pretty funny in the stands. And then, you know, like I said, Pine Creek's fireworks show was going absolutely brazy in that halftime set. So now to start the second half, Vista Ridge does get the ball on their 31-yard line. They get a run up the middle before another run. And then on third and three, there's a quick out to Gavin Jenkins for a first before on the next play, Lydia blows up a slow developing run, but a personal foul on Pine Creek leads to a first down. On first and 10 on the 45, they have a run for six. Before on the next play, they have a delay of game and then a throw for a first. On first and 10 on the 32, there's a quick screen for nine yards. And then Dorman has a keeper for a first. And then Dorman finds Keyshawn Dooley once again in the back of the end zone here for a, another touchdown. I don't know where that is supposed to be on this score sheet here, but uh, that is Keyshawn's second receiving touchdown of the night. There's a potential push off on here, but uh, you know, they let him play and they miss the PAT, making it 13 21. Pine Creek. Three runs in a row and punt. That's their next drive. Vista Ridge, they have the ball on their own 43-yard line. And then there's an insanely athletic run here by Solomon Arns Volson, who, you know, pulls off a nice little cut. He moves very well laterally. He has a nice little spin move, but that does get called back by a holding penalty to set up first and 30 on the 23-yard line. Incomplete pass, run for three. And then they try for a deep shot and no dice. Whatever the heck the penalties were, because I don't know what the deal is at District 20 Stadium, but the refs aren't connected to the speakers, which I think is like so primitive. Like we have no idea what the penalties are unless the announcer repeats them or unless we're able to see the hand signals. But this ref staff, eh, I'm just going to leave it there. Sometimes they weren't always throwing up signals and whatnot. So Whatever that penalty was or those penalties were, it wets the bed on a huge opportunity for Vista Ridge, who had, you know, a chance to pull this within a single score or even tie this game. But, uh, you know, silly mistakes here ends up shooting them in the foot and they end up having to give it to Pine Creek. Pine Creek, they have a short run before taking a deep shot to Elijah Roy, who almost catches this ball, but does draws a pass interference here to set up the ball deep. Now, Elijah Roy is slow to get up. He has to get stretched off. We saw him walking around later, so we think that he's some kind of healthy. You know what I mean? He's not um, experiencing any paralysis or anything like that, but we do hope that he is able to return at some point this season. But uh, on the next play, there's a keeper for none, and then Coop underthrows here, 
And on third and 15, Vista Ridge lines up in punt return and has to burn a timeout. And they get penalized for an illegal substitution. I don't know who's blowing daisies in the outfield over on that sideline and or like picking their nose instead of paying attention, but I don't know how you end up in a punt return situation on third and 15. That is yikes. I'm just going to say that's yikes. That's, that's kind of ridiculous, especially in a game of this magnitude. But uh, on third and 11, doesn't matter. There's a bad pass, and then Visceridge ends up with the ball on their own two-yard line. And I just put on the drive summary that missed deep ball opportunities kill this drive Vista Ridge on their own two um they end up having to punt out of the two yard line uh just on miscommunications and incompletions here um but uh Pine Creek they could have fielded this punt for a big return but they don't and end up with the ball in their own 45 yard line after the punt returner just doesn't do anything honestly and Todd Miller let him know so, yeah, guys, fielding the punt goes a long way. And if you can't field punts, maybe you shouldn't be back there. It, you just have to catch the dang football. It's, that's all that there is to it. But uh, anyways, they get a couple of runs here. We end up in the fourth quarter. And on the opening play of the fourth quarter, Jonathan Core for the score here, putting Pine Creek ahead by a multiple touchdown lead at this point. Vista Ridge, they get the ball here. And the receiver gets absolutely hammered and the ball is intercepted and housed but this is called back by i want to say an unnecessary roughness penalty or something like that this ridge gets another chance to throw a quick hitch brett alvey blows up a run on third and seven they kind of botched the punt here but uh you know they end up running for a first down and i mean a perfect storm i guess for vista ridge to keep this drive alive on first and 10 on the 44, uh, Dewey has himself a nice sideline catch. And then they have a run for 10. Um, on second and eight, Dorman keeps it himself and hurdles for the score. On the uh, two-point attempt, they do get called for a delay of game and end up short. But Brayden Dorman, way smoother athlete than a lot of people realize. Even myself, this hurdle, he does get absolutely rocked, though. Uh, it was a little bit of a late hit, but, I mean, they called it. Set him up on, like, the one-yard line. Doesn't matter because Vista Ridge can't, like, get a play in time with the game on the line. Uh, Pine Creek on their own 30-yard line. Uh, Core gets two runs and a first. And then, you know, an eternity passes, basically, before Mason Miller is stripped on fourth and one. Vista Ridge, they have the ball on their own 45-yard line with 2.53 left in this game. They're down 19-28. to So they have got to get a quick score here and an onside kick. And they end up just doing... Hitch, hitch, run, hitch, hitch, run, false start, hitch, run, quarterback keeper, da-da-da-da-da. The game ends on Braden Dorman throwing it into double coverage to B.B. Hills, just trying to get a last-second score. Mason Miller intercepts this pass, and there's a little bit of contention on this. I did not see Mason Miller get tackled or pushed out of bounds, but the clock ran out. Vista Ridge just kind of watched Mason Miller take this all the way to the opposing 40-yard line, and he high-steps the rest of the way on Vista Ridge. Now, I don't know about you, but me personally, nah, bro, you are not high-stepping on me in this rivalry game for 40 yards. I don't care if I'm chasing you all the way down to the end zone and I gotta give you a late shove. You don't allow that to happen. Vista Ridge here, man, at the end of the day, this play, I think, encapsulates this Vista Ridge squad that I think just was way too conservative 
They made a, they had a lot of opportunities, especially with some of the flags being thrown on Pine Creek. They had more than enough opportunities to potentially win this game, but allowing that to happen is soft. It's very soft. The coaching staff setting up a punt return on third and 15, I'm just not quite convinced on them anymore, and they're going to have to do quite a bit to win back my trust. Now, I know Pine Creek's a really good team, but... Man, that was just such an uninspiring performance, honestly. Uh, Brayden Dorman does cement himself, in my mind, as the best quarterback in the state. I think that he played out of his rocker and really did everything that he could to give Vista Ridge a chance to win this football game. And I don't think Pine Creek played their best football game, yet they still get a win. I mean, Mason Miller absolutely just hammers this Vista Ridge offense. 17 carries, 181 yards. And then Jonathan Core, like I said, 11 carries for 81 yards himself. And, you know, three touchdowns here. Cameron Cooper got to do a little bit better of a job on the deep ball, in my opinion. A little bit more consistent here and uh, just putting it in front of his guys. But, I mean, he only did have 13 attempts, so I don't know if he was necessarily warm or anything like that. Um, but, you know, Pine Creek, they win a game that they definitely should. They show that they're nasty up front and, you know, they hold on for a close rivalry win and will continue to be one of the top teams in Colorado football here and now find themselves at two and one while Vista Ridge finds himself in a one and two hole. Uh, Pine Creek looking ahead will probably end up at four and one potentially. So kudos to Pine Creek on a well-deserved win. Vista Ridge, hopefully this serves as a wake-up call because I mean, gosh, I can, I will not forget that high, Mason Miller high-stepping 40 yards down the field. And while the final score shows 28 to 19, it might as well be 34 19 in my eyes because that emotionally is just, I don't know, man. And uh, Coach V and I were talking about it after the game, we were both able to attend this. And yeah, no, I, I don't know what's going through your mind to allow that to happen. But me personally, no way, bro. No way. But that is the Pine Creek and Vista Ridge game. The other game that was attended by Playmakers Corner this weekend was attended by Gideon up there north who attended the Wellington versus Sterling game. And if you're not familiar with Gideon's kind of layout here, he summarizes one team. So he summarized Wellington first, and then he has a defensive player of the game, offensive player of the game, and a player of the game for one team and then the other. So I'm going to initially start about Wellington here and read his summary on Wellington, just uh, verbatim how he has reported it to us in our notes. So in the words of Sterling, quote, Wellington is a very young team, only freshmen and sophomores. For almost the whole game, to quote Stuart Scott, sub quote, they were as cool as the other side of a pillow, sub quote. For as young of a team as they are, they had a very good all-around game. They started the game with possession and Hudson Willite made a 30-yard return. Willite made a huge run on the third play of the game. That drive, however, ended in a turnover on downs by Wellington. Early in the game, the Eagles were struggling with their defense from the air attacks, but they were defending really well against the run. The Tigers had the size advantage, but the Eagles were able to stop their bigger guys most of the time. When the Eagles got the ball back after Sterling scored, they made good small gains for a while. Cash money, Altschfager, had a lot of good touches in this game and had a 40-yard run at one point. On defense, Altschwager and Willite did a better job on the second drive on defending the air. Wellington almost had an interception, but a miscommunication between those two made it just an incompletion. Still, breaking up a pass is breaking up a pass. 
On their next offensive possession, Altschwager would make large gains on the ground, but Cade Keller would bring in a 32-yard catch and go for the touchdown. Wellington would go for the two-point conversion, but would fall short. This is the beginning of an odd pattern. There was a mere two extra PAT during this game, both of which came from Sterling. Neither team wanted to use their kicker very much in that way. In fact, there were at least three times where both teams were within what most would call field goal range on 4th and 5, or even 4th and 15, and they would go for it rather than kick a field goal. Seth Long, Wellington's freshman kicker slash punter, did an excellent job on the punt, with multiple making it at least 45 yards. He actually had four kickoffs, totaling for 163 yards. To quote the press box staff, Long was, subquote, getting better with every kick, subquote, which furthered the team's advantage as the game would go on. When Wellington got back on defense, they were ferocious. They were punching through the Sterling O-line, and very soon in Sterling's possession after Wellington's first TD, Wellington got a sack and a fumble that they recovered in their half of the field. Altschwager continued to feast and got a couple of first downs. They tried to bait in offsides, which didn't quite work, but then Tanner Gray made a short pass to Cason Brown for the TD, and Cash Money put in the two-point conversion. On defense, however, they let one of the first plays be a bad one. Sterling made a 60-yard run to make it deep into Wellington territory. They managed to stop the run, though, and force a turnover on downs. However, they are on their own 20 at this point. Sterling's defense wouldn't let anything happen, so it goes to Long for the punt. However, the ball gets past Long and into the end zone. Long, however, manages to recover the ball and get it back to their 15 or 20 with a run. He must have been freaking out a bit, but from what I could see, he slithered through like a snake to get it as far away from the end zone as possible. Once on defense in the red zone, Tanner Gray was able to show off his defensive skills, and they forced a fourth down off of a pretty bad situation. Wellington did a good job stuffing the runs along with forcing incompletions off of pressure on the QB. The Wellington D-line was a hair's breadth away from sacking the Sterling quarterback multiple times. They forced a turnover on downs at their own 13, and then Tanner Gray ran for multiple first downs. Kay Keller was very effective, getting a couple first down runs in. There was a 25-yard pass from Gray to Otschwager, and the quarterback sneaks were very effective. Tanner Gray is very good at faking out the defense and making good runs. After a timeout with four minutes left in the half, Tanner Gray punched it himself, putting Wellington up by a little under two TDs after a failed two-point conversion. Long had a 49-yard kickoff return after this TD. Ian Allison kept being involved in tackles, just getting in there and getting half tackles. He is the team's leader, and his starting to warm up has been a huge factor in the improved defense since the first drive. After getting the ball back, Tanner Gray made two huge runs, one for 21 yards and one for 57 yards, falling at the one-yard line. The 57-yard run involved a heck of a stiff arm that was reminiscent of the type you see on SportsCenter. Cade Keller ended up with the TD, but Tanner Gray punched in a two-point conversion. And I mean punched. He was like a weeble wobble, but they don't fall down. He would just not go down, even after getting hit by three different guys. They kicked to the Tigers. Cash Altschwager had a buzzer-beating interception to close the first half. Willite had a lot of good disrupting long coverage, and Zach Swedland had a good tackle for loss that set up a turnover on downs. Things were fast in the third. No team had the ball for more than two to three minutes at a time, and the possessions were as quick as you can get in football. At this point, the Sterling defense adjusted to Altschwager and the run game, slowing it down. It didn't stop, but it slowed. There were a lot of good throws leading to incompletions, bouncing off a guy's hands. On defense, it was much the same with Willite having a lot of good coverage, Allison getting good tackles, and number 99, Tanner Smith, 
who is a six foot five, 220 pound sophomore, might I add, destroying guys that came on his side. However, after playing good defense, Wellington had a bit of a nothing burger. They had a possession where they never got the ball past the line of scrimmage, and then they couldn't stop Sterling at all. However, they were still up big, so it didn't hurt too much. Will I kept having good punt returns with multiple for double digit yardage. Tanner Gray is built like a wildebeest as a six foot four, 220 pounds freshman, and he kept running through contact, shrugging it off, and running fast. He has wheels like a Costco shopping cart. However, he does have room for improvement as there were a few times that he had guys open, but because he was searching for a favorite target, he missed them and would throw an incompletion. After a turnover on downs, Cash Altschwager would catch another interception to get Wellington back in possession, and he got about 35 yards with it. Tanner Gray would run the ball in for a touchdown and go for the conversion again. Wellington would go the full game without a field goal attempt or PAT. Azuya Gracie played some solid defense through the game, but especially in the fourth quarter. And according to these notes here, it does look like Cash had 19 carries for 133 yards in addition to one reception for 32 yards on the offensive side of the ball. Tanner Gray had 16 carries for 187 yards, two scores and two point conversions. But in the past game, definitely struggled a little bit here. And this is my reading of it, by the way, uh, going three of 10 for 57 yards and a touchdown. So might want to work on getting that completion percentage up. Cade Keller had seven touches for 91 yards and two scores and also a reception for a yard. Lincoln Dalton, who is another running back, had four carries for eight yards. And Kaysen Brown had one receptions for 24 yards and that score. So overall, the game stats here as provided by Gideon are 46 carries for 419 yards, four TDs, and then three of 10 for 57 yards and a score. Now, before I talk the... Well, actually, let's just jump into it. Gideon's picks for defensive player of the game was Tanner Smith slash Ian Allison. Tanner Smith and Ian Allison make co-defensive playmaker of the game for me as Allison's on the ground coverage, breaking through and making tackles for loss made it risky for Sterling to go on the ground and helped force multiple air attacks. Now, Tanner Smith's strength made sure that anyone who dared cross his path would regret it and he kept Sterling's running backs away from him, narrowing the Tigers' attacks even further. To further quote Gideon here on offensive playmaker of the game, Tanner Gray, 187 yards, two touchdowns. Gray accounted for a lot of Wellington's points, be it through the air, his own running, or two-point conversions. For a freshman, he has good field awareness and great ball-faking skills. He's about as good of a freshman quarterback as you're going to get. Gray says that he's been working for days, subquote, studying my plays and making sure that I trust my lineman to go in there and block for me. I trust the whole team, subquote. He is extremely well composed going up against teams with much more experience. He takes it as a privilege to show the more experienced players that a freshman has got it. And before I talk about Gideon's player of the game for Wellington, I'm actually going to talk about Sterling's side here. And so Gideon opens up, quote, I will start this with an apology to the Sterling players and fans. This game had about as much misty rain as I've seen in Colorado, and I take notes on a physical notebook. To save it from being drenched, I had to go into the press box. The downside to this is that I could barely see any of the Sterling numbers and as such can't identify players too well. I did the best that I could, but I digress. Sterling had the initial size and experience advantages heading into this matchup. On their first offensive possession of the game, quarterback Wyatt Buckley made a long throw to Nathaniel Whited, and after an incompletion, Buckley threw a 35-yard dot to Sam Emerson. 
They eventually got to fourth down in the red zone, but rather than go for a field goal, Nathaniel Whited, who also plays kicker and punter, rolled out for a touchdown. This gave Sterling an early lead. Whited would also get in the extra point. Whited would then also perform the kickoff to the Eagles, which was about 50 yards. Manuel Rentiera did a great job breaking up the air on defense when he could. When Sterling got the ball back, Evan Morales got a good run in for a first down, but after a couple of close to being interceptions thrown, a QB run, and going for it, a false start on fourth and three, this eventually led to a punt from fourth and eight. This was a pattern in the game where Sterling had four times as many penalties as Wellington, despite being the more ex experienced team. The punt on the play was fumbled and almost blocked, but rolled out at the 21. During this possession, Sterling was very effective at stopping the run game, and when they got the ball back, they were ready. Whited had two straight runs for first downs, but after a tackle for loss by Wellington's Tyler Schaefer and an illegal man downfield penalty leading to second and 18, Sterling could not get out of that hole. Sterling could not stop Cash in the first half, but when they got the ball, Sam Emerson returned a punt for 60 yards. However, they were not able to capitalize due to the O-line. The O-line let guys through like air through chicken wire, sometimes with flocks of defensive linemen getting within inches of Buckley at points. In this possession, after a couple of bad snaps, Sterling had to punt off of a fourth and 40 yard situation. End quote here. Oh my gosh. As, as Cody Stoffer, I'm reacting to this. That is insane, dude. Fourth and 40. I wonder if the punt even gets back to the line of scrimmage. But anyways, uh, going back into Gideon's notes, quote, on their next possession, Andrew Scavarda had a good punt return, but the O-line letting guys through and an illegal shift led to third and 12 in completion. Rather than go for a field goal from 20 yards out, Sterling went for it on fourth and five, failed, and had a turnover on downs. Sterling got better at stopping Cash Altschwager, but they could not even begin to stop Tanner Gray, only contain him. Sterling had a pattern of having one or two first downs followed by lots of incompletions and tackles for loss, all of which was due to the Wellington defense applying pressure in the right ways, proven by a long first down followed by an interception two plays later. Nothing was working once we got into the third quarter, and they ended up in a fourth and 25 situation punting off their own five. However, the O-line started working better as the third quarter went on, and Buckley was able to get off passes for long gains, like one to Caden Mikowski for 35 yards. However, this was followed by an incomplete pass, a bad snap for a 10-yard loss, and going for it on 4th and 20. On defense, Isaac Duncan had a couple of good tackles, and on the next offensive possession, Buckley ran first for 20 yards and then made a QB sneak to get to the touchdown. Once on defense, though, they could not stop the run, which was not helped by a personal foul flag thrown against them. At this point in the game, we were close to an end, but Sterling kept working, which I'll give them credit for. They never put their chins down and kept playing despite being down big. Runs started working more often, passes did too. The passes they had were very quick, quick, and linemen started getting through, but things were working. There was almost a sack on Buckley, but it made a nine-yard gain on a run instead. Whited had a, another touchdown, but the two-point conversion failed. The kickoff for this touchdown hit a Sterling player in the back, down 14. Sterling took timeouts on consecutive plays with two minutes left in the quarter, and the clock eventually winded down. Now, defensive player playmaker of the game for Gideon here in Sterling squad is Gage Parker. Gage Parker was the guy that I saw making the most tackles and disrupting the Wellington offense the most. He was able to make a couple tackles for loss and half tackles to keep the line of scrimmage put. Offensive player of the game goes to Wyatt Buckley. Wyatt Buckley quote ran well, had good vision, and had lots of energy. 
His throws may not have always been caught, but they were usually the right throw. He has the speed and strength to run it as well, and a good arm when pressure is kept off him, end quote. And then finally, for playmaker of the game, on the Sterling side is, quote, Nathaniel Whitehead. Nathaniel Whitehead did everything for the Tigers. Kicked, punt, scored touchdowns, made PATs. He was everywhere. Sub quote, I had a talk with the coaches and they said that I've got to keep working myself and I need to work like I did last year. I intend to keep showing myself this season and I feel like tonight I did that. I'm going to keep picking up these younger guys when they fall down and they will do the same for me. We'll watch each other's backs and keep moving forward. End of sub quote, end quote. And then I'm going to just bounce back here to the playmaker of the game on the Wellington side that, you know, I think ultimately becomes the playmaker of the game for the side with the dub. And that is Cash Altschwager, 133 yards, two-point conversion. Altschwager was one of the heads of the Hydra attacking Sterling tonight. His play on both sides of the ball were admirable, and he was able to make his impact felt. His huge plays and long runs on offense combined with his effective air coverage and two interceptions on defense made him Wellington's playmaker of the game. Altfrogger said that I, subquote, I want to just be the best running back that I can and smash guys in the mouth, end quote, end subquote, end quote. That's a great quote from Cash, by the way. I just want to be the running back that best running back I can and smash guys in the mouth. That's what Northern football can definitely be about from time to time. And so the summary for us in this game from Gideon is, quote, the game was extremely energetic on both sides, but it came down to the line keeping pressure pressure off of position players. Wellington looked like the more disciplined team, despite being less experienced, with their athletic secretary saying that workouts started in March of this year, which shows their dedication. Sterling's offense may have been more powerful had the line been able to stop the Wellington players more effectively. Funnily enough, the defense from both teams was generally pretty good with great moments of coverage from both teams. After last week, people were wondering if Wellington is the real deal, and they are. Their guys proved that last week was not a fluke and that they can compete at a high level on a consistent basis. Sterling played a really good game as well. Despite the score being what it was, Sterling never gave up and they played hard for the full 48. In their post-game speech, it was obvious that the players feel good about the matchup with Kent Denver's Sun Devils next week and Wellington moves on to play the Timnath Cubs in the inaugural Ag Bowl for the Box Elm Cup in Timnath's first ever homecoming game. Boy, that is a mouthful. That is the inaugural Ag Bowl for the Box Elm Cup. Remember that. Uh, hopefully this grows into a nice rivalry as the years start to go on. Both these programs, Wellington obviously being back. This is an end quote, by the way. This is a Cody Stoffer insert here. Both these teams returning. Well, Wellington returning after, I want to say, like a 50-year hiatus of not having a football program and Timnath being brand new. So both these teams brand new to the 2022 uh, Chassa football. And, uh, you know, this... Hopefully, will be an exciting game. Timnath Tim has struggled uh, just a little bit in the start of their program, so we will see. But to return to what Gideon was saying, quote, I will be in attendance for that game, so keep an eye out. One final thought. Generally speaking, both programs are also building quality men. All of the players that I interviewed said, subquote, yes, sir, and subquote, no, sir, and subquote, and were extremely polite the whole time. It honestly felt kind of weird since some of them are only three years younger than I am, so I wasn't expecting that. They were all respectful and props to the coaching staffs for not only coaching good players, but good guys, end quote. Well, Gideon, I know exactly how you feel because, I mean, Simon and I started this a few years ago in 2020, and that would have made us 21 years old, I want to say. 
just about when we started it. And then we eventually turned 22, I wanna say. Yeah, that's how time works. But uh, yeah, it's it's a bit strange, but uh, you know, there's a lot of very polite guys here in Colorado football and a lot of guys who are willing to work. And so uh, just get used to that, even though you're a freshman in college, uh, you are still their senior technically. But thank you, Gideon, for that recap on the Sterling versus Wellington game. And we will be coming back to him after the Saturday recaps that we have in store for his Manitou and Valley recap. And once again, just a shout out to Coach V and for Gideon for attending the games that they did this past week. And we will be hearing from Gideon again. But first, we're gonna talk about Saturday's games. I managed to go to like one and a half and I'll talk about that here in a second. But in the news that I didn't go to, uh, Platte Canyon takes care of business against Sheridan, 55 to six. Inglewood beats Arvada here 19 to 13 in a really close game. Inglewood here getting a little bit of help from some big receptions, such as Dom Deaver's two receptions for 73 yards and Logan Owens two receptions for 50 yards. They were also able to collect quite a few tackles and forced three fumbles and recovered all three fumbles as well. So a little bit of help here and they were able to pull this game out from Arvada. Moving forward, Widefield took care of business against Pueblo Centennial 55 to 10. Far Northeast Warriors did their thing against Gateway 56-13. Kent Denver with a win over 1A Highland 48-6. As Gideon mentioned, there will be a big game with Kent next week. Rampart takes care of business against Palmer 49-14. Moffat County barely outlasts Bayfield here 18-15, but it does look like Moffat County was without senior stud running back Evan Atkin. But no worries as Aaron Aguilar stepped up going 15 carries for 104 yards. And then Caden Hickson being able to try and fill in the gap of scoring here. Eight carries for 61 yards and two scores. Court Murphy had himself an all right game going four of eight for 53 yards and a score. There are a couple of other guys who also had pass attempts that didn't quite work out. Deegan Barnes here, as I unfortunately predicted, is forced into the position of being quarterback since he is their most athletic guy. And while he is very effective on the ground as evidenced by his 13 carries for 70 yards and two scores, he does lose himself specifically as a receiving option. You do have a sophomore in Williams here who did step up leading the Wolverines in receiving yards going for 82, but this team with the departure of that up and coming quarterback going to Texas is hurting just a little bit here. And they lose a really big time game here. Moffat County, you know, I'm not sure what Evan Atkins status is or what their status is honestly, but they're playing teams that are struggling really close. And so it will be surprising to see how long they might maintain their spot in top 10s. Another news, Eaton takes care of business against another top 10 opponent in Platte Valley, winning 44-0 behind the efforts of a Walker Martin going 9 of 12 for three touchdowns. And then on the ground, they also ran for 207 yards and three scores as well. And then on defense, just being absolute menaces, nine tackles for loss, two interceptions, two pass deflections, forced and recovered fumble. There's not a lot that Eaton could not do on this Saturday night. Colorado Springs Christian beats Denver Christian 52 to 20. 
on the Colorado Springs Christian side, you do have Ashton Lofton putting in a good effort here. 11 carries for 144 yards and two of this team's five rushing touchdowns as they averaged 10 yards per carry and ran for 330 yards, which is just bonkers, honestly. Uh, but, you know, elaborating just a little bit more, it looks like they were able to get a couple of passing touchdowns as well with Taylor McLeod, Drew Hazley, and Casey Orowalek, 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 I guess, uh, being on the receiving ends of those. So Colorado Springs Christian with a, another win here to keep their spot in the top 10. Now, as for the game that I attended, we were out in Strasburg for the second consecutive week this week. That is probably like the closest 1A school to me as far as not driving super far west or super far east here. And Strasburg, this was a matchup of our number one and number two ranked power ranked teams from last week. Strasburg coming off of a win over a solid Wiggins squad in double overtime and Lyman doing Lyman things being undefeated to this point in the season just like Strasburg, and they met in a huge heavyweight matchup here. And so Strasburg, they receive the ball and start on their own 25. They have a quick screen that goes for six before a run sets up third and four, and a face mask on the Lyman defense moves the chains. On first and 10 from their own 44, Shubarth blows up after this, you know, for well, they try a pass on their own 44, and then Shubarth blows it up. And on third and four, they are stopped and have to punt. Now, the drive summary, they have some nice quick completions that moves the ball a little bit. But Schubert, Schubarth, my bad, and Trayton Marks are no joke on this drive. And they aren't a joke for the rest of this game. More on that later. Lyman starts on their own 35, and Gabe Schubarth rushes for a first down. Before on the next play, Marrero meets Schubarth at the line. Rushman then gets a hold of Keon Bandy. And then on third and seven, they have a run for two by Logan Botcher. And on fourth and four on the opposing 44, there's great patience by Botcher on an under center jet sweep, but holding backs it up to fourth and 12. And so I put on the drive summary after tough running to start, the Strasburg defense stiffens up. So Strasburg, they then get the ball on their own 15 and there is a slip and missed catch by Velasco here. And then, you know, very physical coverage by number three on Lyman Lance Beatty results in an incompletion and Strasburg ends up in a third and 10 situation where 77, number five and number 71 all meet Marrero in the backfield. Those players being number 77, Jace Faust, number 71, Trayton Marks, get used to hearing that name, and number five being Keon Bandy. So they meet Marrero in the backfield and they actually strip him and recover the fumble inside of the red zone and so Lyman has the ball on the 12 going in and they just hand off Bandy, Shoebarth, Bandy, Rockwell, Shoebarth, score all right and they jump out to an early lead here now when Strasburg gets the ball back here down seven nothing he has a nice throw on a rollout right to get all the way to the opposing 41 before there's an incomplete pass, a short run, and an incomplete pass. On this one, I think that Landon Martin just gets a little rattled here. The pocket looks pretty all right on this third down attempt. Uh, third and seven, that is to be specific, but it just looked a little rushed here. And so on fourth and seven, they do punt, and Lyman starts off first and 10 on their own 17-yard line. They get a short run, Shubarth cuts inside, 
Um, where, whereas I think the hole is outside. So just working on that vision a little bit for Shoebarth was a big takeaway for me. And then they have a toss for Nada. Now at the end of the first, my quick summary here at the end of the first quarter was that a fumble sets up a lineman score. Otherwise the defenses are playing strong. Uh, the lineman defensive line tandem of Faust and Marks is a problem, but Marrero and Rushman, the pair of Zacks on Strasburg, are filling lanes with speed and force. Now, on this punt, Lyman punts to start the second quarter, and Strasburg actually muffs the punt here, and they give Lyman the ball on the 49-yard line. And so, they Lyman, real quick, starts out with a rollout left, where Rockwell finds Bennett. Kale Bennett, that is, on play action for a first. Rushman then makes a stellar play in the backfield, and eventually they end up on third and 12. They have a quick run for three, and that sets up fourth and 11, where Lyman takes a timeout with 9.36 remaining in the half. Rockwell then finds Bennett for a massive first down. This is a rollout left, and you know, Bennett, I'm not sure if it was his own guy or somebody else, but Bennett definitely runs into somebody and gets slowed down. But Rockwell just has so much time on this play action, and he just flips his shoulders very, very well in these play action boots. He's a right-handed quarterback, mind you, and they're running this boot left pretty regularly, and he connects with Bennett for a massive first down on a fourth and long, right? Then, following that, they have a run for five, and on second and five, Logan Botcher gets a rush for a first down. On the next play, Dalton Bergstrom gets a nice tackle for loss of five, but this would not matter as Cale Bennett gets wide open and Rockwell has a nice throw for the touchdown. And so on the drive summary, I put that the Strasburg front seven did everything they could, but the secondary did not defend the rollout left. They were getting too sucked in to that play action. And that is, you know, something to note for if these two teams play again. So Lyman out here with a 14-0 start and Strasburg starts with the ball on their own 22 with seven and a half. Um, there's a run here. Then a pass gets batted by number 52, Miguel Nunez here to force an incompletion. And then there's a nice in route from Landon Martin to Turner here. I believe that's Hayden Turner, as a matter of fact, that is a first down. You love to see these intermediate throws. These are the ones that separate, you know, the guys from people who maybe aren't as talented a quarterback. So to see Landon completing these deep in routes is good. But then on the next play, uh, Trayton Marks blows up the run. Landon Martin hits Turner again, but then there is a pass that doesn't go anywhere and they eventually have to punt. On the drive summary, I just put that Strasburg really can't run in this first half. Now, Lyman, they return the punt to the opposite 44, but flags eventually put them on their own 30-yard line. They end up in a third and five situation. Jordan Rockwell steps up in the pocket and delivers a dart to Bandy for a big first down. Now, in the next run, Rockwell leaves Bodger kind of to dry here on a speed option, and Lyman takes a timeout with one minute and 22 seconds, and the ball on the 47 going in. There's a quick screen to Lance Beatty that ends up going for a first, and Rockwell's ability to step up in the pocket is sweet and takes off and slides for 10, but a holding penalty brings it back to the 43 with 53 seconds remaining. There's run by Gabe, um, then there's a run left, and number 32, Austin Moose Velasco, eventually on the last play of the half, gets a sack and brings us to the second half here. And so some takeaways here is just, like I said, Strasburg cannot get the run game going. And honestly, both these defenses are playing phenomenal run defense, honestly. Like I cannot stress how 
disciplined both these defenses are and how aggressive and fast both defenses are playing. It is a huge surprise to see just how athletic this lineman defensive line is, even though they literally are every single year. And then Strasburg, outside of a couple of mistakes, is right in this game. But you look at, they turn the ball over twice. You really can't turn the ball over against Lyman here. And then there's just some chemistry and connection things to kind of iron out, I would say, in this game against um, Lyman and to get their passing game in a better spot. But... I digress. We jump into the second half here, and Lyman, they are finally feeling themselves. They have a good talk, and they just chip away, just pounding the run over and over and over again here before, what do you know, Jordan Rockwell, roll out left, finds his guy, Hoffman, for the score. That's Michael Hoffman, to be specific, and this puts Lyman up 22 nothing here, heading into, you know, Strasburg's opening drive, of the third Strasburg eventually it just gets stuffed consecutively and they eventually have to punt now on this next drive Lyman rips off a massive run and they score but this is called back by penalty no worries here as Jordan Rockwell connects on a deep down dime down the right sideline that is caught in bounds by Logan Botcher here to flip fields here. This was a 27-yard reception and a great toe-tapping play, just an athletic play by Logan here to flip the field. Now they have a power run for a first, a short run, a timeout with a minute 34 left in the third, ball in the 13 going in. Strasburg does eventually hang tough and forces a turnover on downs. This is basically Strasburg's last chance here. They have the ball on their own eight-yard line starting the fourth, and there is a huge run by Marrero to flip field on the other side of the 50. However, a personal foul pushes them back on their own side of the field, and this drive eventually fizzles out, and they have to punt. Now, Lyman, they get the ball on their own 35, and there's a short run. Uh, Egan Stevens on the tackle here for Strasburg, a good tackle. But then uh, Gabe, you know, being a powerful and fast runner, he's able to really hammer out some of these yards he had himself a pretty solid game here going 17 carries for 80 yards and a score uh not quite getting the receptions that we're looking for but you know being the most reliable source of offense here for this lineman team as far as average yards per carry and just being very strong um some takeaways on his game that i would recommend he does need to work on his vision a little bit more i think that he misses holes whether it's bouncing to the outside or maybe he tries to force it back inside too much i think he's looking too hard for that inside cut so just working on that vision and working on his lateral ability a little bit too uh to me able maybe be able to make those cuts outside to be able to bounce it outside and pick up those big yards now on this uh next run here uh keon bandy he bangs ahead for a first down they get another first down run before number 79 and Egan, number 75 on this Strasburg team. Get the backfield, number 79 being Alexander Dickens. They do make a play in the backfield on this next play before uh, Rushman. Then on the next play, uh, draws a massive holding call that takes away a 17-yard run. There's just not a whole lot that I think the Lyman players can do here. Rushman just comes in with just a ferocity that makes him very hard to block. So I think that's what draws this holding penalty here. Now, it makes it second and 20 from the 45-yard line. 
and they run a quick screen for about 17 yards where Bandy takes a massive hit from Rushman, but this does get called back for offensive pass interference anyway. And so on second and 35, right here, you know, Strasburg, they're looking for that last gasp here, but any hopes here get instantly dashed as Jordan Rockwell just makes a tremendously athletic play here and rips one down the right sideline, showing incredible speed to put them up. Lyman, that is, 27 to Zill with 5.56 left. Now, Strasburg, they get the ball back. Uh, Rushman gets a jet sweep left for a first. And Austin Velasco, I mean, look, he's a very solid young player. I, I'm not going to take that away from him, but he's got to make some of these catches in these big games here if they want to go further in the playoffs. He just misses this one pass here. And then uh, Devlin picks up seven yards. And on third and four, Egan does block Trayton just long enough for Marrero to make the edge for a first down before Landon Martin is strip sacked by Marks, but Strasburg recovers. A false start puts him at third and 21. A pass goes too high, and then a snap goes too high, and the punt barely gets off before Lyman eventually runs this game away. Now, takeaways. Both these teams are very talented, and for this contest, I think that it just came down to execution, and that is what Lyman has been known for the entirety of the program. That is their, you know, bread and butter is just you know they're not trying to do anything flashy they are just executing and i mean you can't get much better execution here i mean look the strasburg run defense played tremendously honestly you subtract jordan rockwell's like 50 yard run here and you're looking at a team in lyman who outside of that one big rush here had 51 carries right for we'll say like 200 yards so, I mean, you're making them average less than four yards per carry. That's very solid, okay? And, you know, you're holding guys like Gabe Schubart to 4.7 yards per carry, even though he normally averages way more. You're holding guys to Logan Botcher to 1.9 yards per carry, which is fantastic, right? You're doing a lot of things very, very well. It's just that once Strasburg gets to the offensive side of the ball, Lyman does a lot of the same. You know, Strasburg, they only run the ball 14 times and only pick up 62 yards. And if you subtract the 47-yard run from Zach Marrero in the fourth for that, that's 13 carries for 15 yards. Oh my gosh. You are barely averaging over a yard per carry here. That is just not going to win you football games. You have to be balanced. And I mean, look, Strasburg here, they get to run 32 plays compared to Lyman's 61. So time of possession is a huge deal here. The ability that Lyman has to convert on these pass attempts. I mean, look, Jordan Rockwell was insanely efficient. This is the first time that I've gotten eyes on him. And he played way better in the biggest game of the year than he has up until this point in the season. Look, he goes eight of nine for two touchdowns. And then on the ground, he has six carries for 70 yards and a score. On one drive, he goes a perfect three of three, including throwing a touchdown pass both those other passes going for first downs as well. Like his ability to roll out, use his footwork to get set and deliver strikes is just very impressive and something that is going to help Lyman. You know, I mean, Lyman right now, they're the guys to beat. And I think that they just took care of business against the second best team in the state here in a fairly convincing fashion. I think that, you know, you take away some of the turnovers from Strasburg and you're maybe looking at 0-0 heading into the second half, but Lyman in the second half just looked like a completely different team. They were able to run the ball a little bit better. They're getting a better push. They're, you know, 
run schemes and techniques looked a little bit better. And I mean, this, I don't even think this is Lyman at their best since they did commit a ton of holding penalties uh, throughout this game. Now, part of that is just an absolute credit to how athletic and violent this Strasburg defense is. But I mean, those are things that are going to be ironed out by the postseason. And that should worry a lot of teams here on the 1A level, or at least anyone who does have to face off against Lyman. Now, uh, shout out for Lyman here. Cale uh, Bennett, Michael Hoffman, obviously getting their work in here. Uh, looks like they have a freshman kicking PATs for them. So that's pretty cool. Also got to meet Logan Botcher, a really cool guy, as well as Trayton Marks, Jordan Rockwell. And, you know, all these guys just did a fantastic job. I believe that I also met uh, Miguel Nunez, I want to say, was the other young man there. Um, if I am spacing on you, I am really sorry. It was a long weekend and I see a lot of football. But, I mean, this Strasburg defense, six tackles for loss. Trayton Marks with a sack here and uh, two fumble recoveries. Logan Botcher also forcing a fumble. And that was kind of his claim to fame, in my opinion, uh, during his time at Florence. Logan was being a very solid defensive player. So it was really surprising to see him do as much as he was asked to do on offense. You know, he does get 62 total scrimmage yards on 19 touches. Not his most efficient game as the Strasburg defense was very athletic and able to kind of match the energy of those, you know, like jet sweeps that Logan gets a lot of. And, you know, they did a pretty good job, I think, of handling a lot of these gut runs that the likes of Shoebarth and Bandy get as well. Um, but that passing attack from Lyman was just very lethal. And it's not like they had to do it a lot. Like I said, eight of nine, but those eight passes go for 104 yards, two scores, and not a single turnover. Now, to talk about Strasburg, as I said, I think their defense played really, really well. Uh, Zach Rushman and Zach Marrero were doing a really good job against the run game here, but they got to be more disciplined on these play action fakes. Most of the time on these play actions, the receiver was wide open. And I mean, absolutely wide open. There were times where no one was even within three to five yards of the open receiver. So the secondary has to take a step forward here. And then offensively, I mean, they have just got to execute a little bit better. I mean, look, Lyman's defensive line, and this isn't any disrespect to either of these teams. It's just what I'm seeing, right? And so this Lyman defensive line, I think was very dominant, especially in regards to the run game. And Strasburg may have abandoned the run game a little too early here, but you can make also make an argument that 15, or I should say 13 carries for 15 yards is worthy of not, you know, pursuing that more. I was a little surprised to see Caleb Hart with as few touches as he had this week. I mean, he had one carry for negative three and he also had a reception for six. But compared to the previous week against Wiggins, where I think Caleb Hart was easily in the conversation for Playmaker of the Week, and some people would have even dialed it up like that for Playmaker of the Game, uh, Caleb was just not super involved this week. And I don't know if it was, you know, just like a chemistry thing or a feeling thing or just a game plan thing, but I would probably be expecting to see Caleb Hart get the ball more in these big time games. Now, Landon here. He had himself an okay game, but I mean, there's always room for improvement. If you can get with your receivers and just get on the same page, more chemistry. Look, I believe that Strasburg called a really good football game here. I think that the coaching staff threw a lot of different looks at the Lyman defense, and there were opportunities to move the ball, especially through the air, where I think that Strasburg athletically probably has a little bit of advantage against, you know, this younger secondary here of Lyman but you've got to convert. You've got to catch the ball when it hits you in the hands. 
you gotta you know be able to run a few more routes you got to be able to create separation right i mean velasco well i'm pretty i thought he had a catch in this game but at least on max reps is listed with none if he ended up getting one or two i mean that's still not enough to win this game against lyman obviously that fumble in your own red zone here is just critical but i mean part of it is protect the football the other part is three guys are all tackling one running back in the backfield right so i'm calling on the you know strasburg line to have to step up i'm calling on the run game to be a bit more consistent and i'm calling on the pass game to definitely take a step forward this is a younger i'd say passing core with the likes of velasco and martin but you do have guys like hayden turner who are more experienced you have guys like caleb hart who are a senior as well and those guys have got to do a little bit better in my opinion here so and then also you do have like paul smith i think who could probably contribute a little bit more in the past game and just getting more guys involved and being a bit more versatile and just executing 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 that was and i said at the beginning that was the difference of this game when Lyman went to throw they completed passes and when they went to run you know they could pull off around four yards per carry when Strasburg went to pass they only completed 33 percent of the time when they go to run they basically average two yards per carry right so just being able to get a better push on the offensive line get a you know more separation in the pass game is going to be Strasburg's keys and then just huge shout out to Lyman and their ability to convert on the defensive line they're always super dominant and on the offensive line they cleaned up quite a bit heading into the second half and adjusted very very well kudos to the coaching staff and the players for stepping up their game and then putting this game away now my playmaker of this game is going to go to jordan rockwell and he is a candidate for playmaker of the week so be sure to stay tuned for that but as far as the other game that was witnessed on saturday gideon did tune in to the stream of the manitou versus valley game so we're gonna go ahead and read his summary on that and he would like to start off with a disclaimer quote i will open this by stating i am a manitou graduate and i will do my best to not let this cloud my judgment or let any bias creep into my overview of the team with that let us begin and so obviously we have the valley section here first quote valley started this game with possession but it went nowhere fast with a fourth and oh my gosh does that say 48 Okay, that was a Cody insert, but a 4th and 48 punt, continuing with what Gideon has here. However, on the first play of defense, the Vikings recovered a fumble and ran for a good 20 yards with it. After a sack that left him at 2nd and 14, Marcus Vialpondo was able to punch in a touchdown on a short run. However, the PAT attempt was blocked, so they go up 6 to nothing here. So, interesting start to this game that ended up being really wacky. Once on defense, defensive tackle Aiden Trujillo went to work, getting a good tackle for loss to push back a Mustang advance. Sophomore David Oropesa would then get a long run before sophomore quarterback Carson Adolph would get sacked. However, Adolph would get off a good look to make the game a third and nine situation, which gave Vialpondo an opportunity to pick up the first down. Junior running back Julian Ramirez was able to run it to the one, which was brought back to the six due to penalties. They were unable to punch the clock on that drive, leaving them with a turnover on downs in a first and goal situation. Isaiah Robinson would do a good job breaking up Manitou's running game, keeping the ball back, leading to a punt. However, they would then allow a 98-yard touchdown by Tyler Maloney along with a two-point conversion. Noah Sarkay was able to get a good punt return, but a couple passes going over guys' heads and passes that got broken up led to another punt. 
On the following defensive drive, the Vikings were breaking out the anti-aircraft weaponry with junior Tyson Alps getting a good hand in once in a while. Once the Vikings were back on offense, Blake Herman started to take over. Herman started with a small gain, but then turned a second and 13 into a first down. The Viking offense forced an encroachment call against the Mustangs before an almost touchdown. As he was going for the ball, Aiden Brownwell tripped while backpedaling, but it was a really good look regardless. Herman broke through the defense for a gain that brought the Vikings close enough that Adolf was able to run a QB sneak for the touchdown. Brownell was Brownell made up for the trip by sending in the PAT. On defense, Julian Lechuga was putting in good work, getting a tackle for loss before the defense was allowing, you know, a lot of small gains happen. Then after getting an encroachment call of their own, the Vikings let in another touchdown by the Mustangs and a penalty on the first attempt at a two-point attempt let the Mustangs gain another eight. On the ensuing drive, even though the guys were getting through to the QB, sometimes coming within inches, Adolph kept getting almost passes. Passes that either hit a guy in the hands or are within half a foot. Alps was able to get a couple good gains, one for eight yards, but they did have to punt. Ramirez had great awareness on the punt as the ball bounced back towards the Vikings and he was able to stop it after one bounce. On the first play of this defensive drive, there was a pass interference call, but the Vikings were able to make that into a third and ten. However, Tyler Maloney rolled right and got another touchdown and there was another two-point conversion. Blake Herman managed to get another word in defensively as he was then able to get a couple of tackles for loss on the Vikings' next defensive turn. However, a strange sequence of events that will be covered in the Manitou section led the Vikings to starting on the opposing 20-yard line. A penalty brought it back to the 27 on second down, and while Abs and Ramirez had good runs, they were able to convert on the possession, leading the Vikings to a field goal attempt. This was blocked and ended as a kick six. On offense, once again, they had more luck. A pass interference call gave them a first down and a 30-yard run by Villalpando set up another touchdown by Herman. They were then able to get a two-point conversion to narrow the Mustang lead. Now on defense, Trujillo was able to get a sack that contributed to the Mustangs having a third and 19 situation and ultimately forcing a punt. Once on offense again, Ramirez was able to get on board once more as after less than eight plays, he was able to bring in another touchdown. Herman converted for two more and the game just got a lot more interesting. After a big tackle for loss by Ramirez, the Vikings found themselves on offense once again. They then had a turnover on downs. When they were next on offense, things went wonky. Ramirez ran for a loss, a pass hit Sarche in the hands, and they let a lot of guys on third down. A lot of guys threw on third down, I should say. After another punt, Valley played good defense to get the ball back, which went nowhere due to tackles for loss and a sack, and another punt, which was nearly blocked. Valley forced some incompletions, which led to a punt that got recovered by Isaiah Robinson. There was a long pass to Villalpando, which led to a touchdown that gave Valley a 35-30 lead, with under three minutes to go. They fell short on the two-point attempt, which was not great to see. Once back on defense, Austin Moya would have a good tackle, but a holding penalty on defense and otherwise shoddy pass defense all around on the last drive made it so that the Mustangs could score with 18 seconds left. After getting the ball back with 16 seconds, the Vikings had a couple longer gains, but didn't make it into the red zone in time, losing 36 to 35. Now, defensive playmaker of the game brought to you by Gideon is quote, Aiden Trujillo, a two-time 3A heavyweight wrestling champion, by the way. Coming out of the state championship season in wrestling, the 6'2 senior made his presence known, 
With multiple tackles for loss and big moments, he helped shift the offensive line and kept the D line focused enough that the run game stopped being as effective for the Mustangs, especially as the game went on. This especially helped as stopping the run in the third and fourth was a big part in Valley's comeback from being down 17. At the end, the Mustangs didn't try to run the ball down the middle, and the main gains came from outside of Trujillo's sphere of influence. Offensive playmaker of the game and playmaker of the game for Valley is Blake Herman, is the reason the Vikings stayed in this game. Quote, the senior was not going to stand by and let his team lose. The Vikings almost came back from being down 30-13 to 13 in the third, and this was due to Herman's tenacity and composure. Herman says that, subquote, we didn't have the outcome that we wanted, but a lot of our mistakes were internal. We showed glimpses of the team that we can and should be. I attribute my success to my teammates since they fought with all they had. I can't be more proud to say I'm captain of those proud warriors, end subquote, end quote. Now, as for the Manitou section here, Gideon writes, quote, Manitou is a very young team with only four seniors on the squad, two of whom are new. For their age, they performed well and were energetic and spirited throughout the night. This was shown on the first possession of the game, forcing a punt from a fourth and 48. However, in the very first play of the offensive night, they had a bad snap, which led to a fumble that was recovered by Valley. Quarterback Logan Moore was able to get a sack, but they could not stop the drive or the touchdown. However, Kyan Bunker blocked the PAT attempt, leaving the Mustangs only down by six. After a good kick return by Tyler Maloney, Nate Gensel was able to get a couple of good passes to Evan Shearer. Evan Shearer, my bad. Shear last played at Air Academy as a sophomore and is making his presence felt as a new senior on this team. Shear has wheels and is able to muscle guys around a lot. However, the Mustangs were not able to bring up a first down, which led to a punt. The Mustangs were not great at stopping the outside run during this drive or for most of this game, but Donovan or Nollis or Nollis was able to get a sack early. The interior and air defense were really good, but the outside run kept getting by, which may be because one of the starting outside linebackers is out with a concussion right now. A large portion of the interior defense was junior D lineman Braden Dowling, who is just trawling the line like an aircraft carrier, and with the guys rallying around him, there wasn't much that got past the Manitou D line. This helped the Mustangs to force a turnover on downs within their own four, but then something amazing happened. On 2nd and 12, on their own two, Nate Gensel made a 6-8 to eight yard pass to Tyler Maroney on the left side. Maloney then ran for 98 yards for the touchdown. Gensel then threw another pass to tight end Donovan Ornales for the two-point conversion. And then on defense, strong safety Kyan Bunker made a good tackle for loss, and the team forced a couple incompletions to get a punt. Preston Rhodes, Maloney's little brother, lives up to his name as he was able to make a good gain on the punt return. After that, this drive did not go well. Gensel was forced to make a few quick decisions, and even though he made the right pass, they would fall incomplete. Eventually, Gensel punted the ball. The punt did not go well, however, as it ended up at the Mustang 25-yard line before a Viking even sniffed it. Next, the Vikings lured the Mustangs into an encroachment call, and they could not stop much this drive, allowing a touchdown by Adolph. Following this, Maloney got a 20-yard kick return, followed the next play by a 15-yard carry. Shear caught a couple of shorter passes that still brought up 4th and 1. The Mustangs tricked the Vikings and got a first down off an encroachment penalty. The run slowly stopped working, which led to a pass to Evan Shear, and that led to a 17-yard touchdown run by Maloney. Gensel got it to Maloney again for the 2-point conversion, putting the Mustangs up good. The ensuing defense was solid, forcing multiple 3rd downs and breaking up long passes in the air. 
Once back on offense, a first play pass interference by Valley brought Manitou upfield, but a couple of incompletions put that in jeopardy. However, a long throw on third and 10 to Shear that converted led to a timeout, which led to a 15-yard touchdown by Tyler Maloney. Getting familiar with that name, Cody and Sir. Uh, quote, Gensel threw a pass in to wide receiver Sam Fournier to make the two-point conversion good, which was an extremely quick possession to score before halftime. Once they got the ball after halftime, penalties brought the ball to the 12, but a 40-yard catch-and-go by Ornalis kept the Mustangs alive, and Ornalis may be a watchless guy at 6'2", 200 pounds. Tight end, fella. Maloney managed to make this a third and five, but an injury and an incompletion combined with a bad snap forced the Mustangs back to their own 20 on defense. Sophomore Asher Levine, Ben Perkins, and Kyan Bunker all got good strong tackles in with one stopping the ball at scrimmage and the other two being for loss, forcing the Vikings to take a field goal. This was then blocked by sophomore Kyan Bunker and recovered by cornerback Logan Moore, who returned the ball to the house for a kick six. The two-point conversion would fail. Once back on defense, Dowling was able to make a huge tackle for loss, but a pass interference call brought Valley back into the game off of what would have been a fourth down even without the interference. Starter Leighton Little was also injured on this play, making it even worse. This led to a long-running touchdown being allowed, and the Mustangs failed to keep the conversion out of the end zone. Manitou then tried to rely on the run, which did not work, allowing a sack and having to deal with a third and 19. After a timeout and an incompletion, Gensel punted again. The Mustangs failed to stop another run, another touchdown, and two points were allowed in. Shear managed to make a 35-yard return, and some good catch and runs by Maloney kept it competitive, but an almost fumble was a comma on this drive, combined with limited blocking for Maloney on the left side, made it difficult enough to punt again. However, the Mustangs got good snaps at the right time, giving the Mustangs the ball. Double, however, two straight overhead incompletions and then a fake punt that went incomplete led to a turnover on downs for the Mustangs. Shear was able to break up a lot of stuff in the air, but on the punt at exactly the wrong time, the Mustangs got called for roughing the kicker. This gave the Vikings the first down, but Gage Williams stepped up and got a clutch sack. This led to the Mustangs getting the ball back, and after the Mustangs recovered a fumble with very little time left, down by a score, an offensive pass interference call messed up the whole plan. However, once they got back on offense, Shear got a long kick return and then caught a pass that earned a first down with a little over a minute left. A false start brought the Mustangs back, but a catch by Arnalis pushed them forward once more until the Mustangs run the three-yard line with 21.6 left. Nate Gensel made a handoff on the right side to Logan Moore, who ran in the TD. The two-point conversion failed, but the Mustangs were up 36-35. to There's a penalty on the penultimate play of this game, but all in all, the last couple minutes for the Mustangs worked because they played solid defense and knew when to use the air rather than the ground. The defensive player of the game brought to you by Gideon in this Manitou for the Valley game is Braden Dowling. Quote, the 6'4", 215-pound junior is a force to be reckoned with. Dowling was a large part in the Mustang defense, allowing very little down the middle in the running game, making the rest of the defense able to focus on other aspects of the game. He had five solo tackles, but adding half tackles, Dowling had 15 on the night. This forced the Vikings to make their gains elsewhere, and Dowling had many high-impact plays, including tackles for loss, and was extremely close to blocking the punt. Offensive playmaker of the game goes to Nate Gensel, quote, the 6'4 junior QB threw three touchdowns for the Mustangs with 170 yards in total on the night. The vast majority of his throws were on target, and even when they weren't, it wasn't for a lack of power. Gensel had good tools, he just has to connect more on long throws. It would also be good to see how Gensel moves on the ground, as he was not running much at all. 
Kensol excelled in the clutch, which is a situation I have seen him in many times. He also punted the whole night and got it off quick and well. To quote Coach V, subquote, that is the type of situation quarterback dreams about. To have a game in his hands like that, end subquote, he was able to focus at the right time to make the right plays, end quote. Playmaker of the game, and obviously when you're the winning team, this means that you're the overall playmaker of the game, not just for your team, and that is going to go to Tyler Maloney, who had three touchdowns, almost 200 yards in the night, a decent portion of which came with his, you know, 98-yard catch and run. Maloney's power and speed made him difficult to deal with, and his play allowed for the Mustangs to build up a 30-13 lead to begin with. And even once that lead, even once the run stopped being as effective, Maloney made solid plays to keep his team competitive and keep the young squad's held heads high. Subquote, we are a really well-balanced team. We run, we throw, and we do it all. The great thing is that we can really trust both the air and ground game. When one gets shut down, we really trust that the other side is able to pick up the slack. We trust all of the hands because if you doubt any of your teammates, it's not going to work. End subquote. And end quote. Tyler Maloney, by the way, is a nominee for Playmaker of the Week, so please stay tuned for that segment that is going to be coming up right after this. Summary. Brought to you by Gideon of Manitou versus Valley. This game was extremely interesting. The Vikings had a slow start, but older, more experienced players were able to bring them back into the game. Their explosion of offense in the second half was a marvel to watch. However, there is a reason that they were down big to begin with. The dynamic duo of Tyler Maloney and Nate Gensel, along with a lot of new talent, powered the Mustangs on offense, while strong interior D, led by Dowling, saved the game multiple times. When the run game stopped working as well, Manitou was able to adapt at the right time and failed to fall into the trap that Cody brought up last week in relying too heavily on the run. Uh, Cody inserted. thanks for that shout out. Anyways, returning quote, Gensel forced the Vikings to respect the pass by making on-target throws. They didn't always connect, but they were good enough that it opened up the field. The Vikings defense spearheaded by Trujillo excelled in the third and fourth, but they were eventually stretched too thin. During the period that the defense was firing on all cylinders, the offense was able to make multiple huge plays through Herman, Ramirez, and Adolf, which almost saved the night. This was extremely fiery and competitive a game, the type that football fans dream about. It's about as Friday night lights as it gets with a large community presence and cars driving past honking at the game. The Mustangs improved to 1-1 and, and will travel to Rocky Ford to take on the Meloneers next Friday, and the 0-2 Vikings will go to Fort Lupton to tackle the Blue Devils as well. Best of luck to both squads this season, end quote from Gideon. The Mustangs definitely should be 2-1 next week. The uh, Rocky Ford Meloneers are a struggling program, as we've talked about in you know Simon's season preview, and as well as some recaps from this year. They just got throttled by Wiggins, and I think that Manitou will probably improve to 2-1. And then Valley, this might be a must-win game against Fort Lupton, who has been a little bit surprising this season, in all honesty, and has played a little bit above expectations, I would say. But, I mean, this was an instant classic. I mean, you look at the score alone, 36-35, to 35, and you hear the absolute madness that was going on in this game, just so nicely recapped by Gideon here, and so expertly maneuvered. I mean, both these teams were having big plays, making silly mistakes, and I think that that's part of the beauty of football is that, you know, there's very rarely a perfect game by either team, but you know, for every one mistake that one squad made, it was then met in turn basically by the other squad's mistake. So thank you Gideon for recapping two games this week. It was an absolute pleasure reading through these and guys make sure to, uh, and you know, for the future Gideon will be at more games 
up north there. I want to say that the next game that he will be at is potentially the Timnith versus Wellington game. Uh, both those being like brand new programs or, well, it might not be the next game that he's at, but he will be at that game next week. So look out for him. That's on Friday, September 16th. And then it also looks like he's potentially trying to make the Platte Valley versus Wiggins game, which is going to be a very good showdown between a solid 2A squad and one of the better 1A programs. So if you're at those games, make sure to say what's up to Gideon. He is our guy here at PMC, and we appreciate the work that he puts in. But we're going to take a small break here, and after the break, we got Playmakers of the Week and Power Rankings coming up. Thank you all for your patience as we did get to this point in the show. And it is that time to talk Playmakers of the Week here. And so we're going to go ahead and just climb from 1A on up here with our candidates. And then I will go ahead and reveal who the Playmakers of the Week are. So our candidates for Playmaker of the Week from Week 1, I have from Caleb Camp here on the Buena Vista Demon Squad. He had seven receptions for 96 yards and two receiving scores in a win over Centauri, 24 to 18. That was a top 10 matchup. And, you know, while Hayden Camp did perform very well, I did want to shout out Hayden's younger brother here, Caleb, who was dominant at the receiver position for this squad. As far as other candidates here, I am looking at the 28 to 20 upset over Peyton that center had here. And while I do want to give some respect to Jesus Valadez, who had three throwing touchdowns and a rushing touchdown, I'm actually going to give my nomination to Kale Ruggles, the senior receiver, who had 12 receptions for 172 yards and two scores, not to mention that he had another 12 rushing yards to boot. That is just absolutely insane here. And yeah, I just... First off, I, I definitely want to say it was an upset win that center was able to pull off over Peyton. And while, you know, Jesus had a very solid game here, Ruggles put up numbers that you just typically don't see on the 1A level here. And then our last nominee here for Playmaker of the Week on the 1A level is Jordan Rockwell. I talked about him in the Strasburg versus Lyman segment. Go ahead and give that a listen. But in Lyman's biggest game up until this point of the year, Rockwell was basically perfect. Eight of nine. 104 yards, two passing touchdowns, six rushes for 70 yards, and the dagger rushing score and a 27-0 win over Strasburg. And this was on a day where Lyman, outside of, you know, this like 50-yard run that, you know, Rockwell had, they barely averaged four yards per carry, even a little bit under. So for him to rip off that long run was a big deal. On the 2A level, our candidates are Chase Schaefer from Prospect Ridge Academy. He did everything that you possibly could imagine. Two tackles for loss, a sack, 12 total tackles, fumble recovery, and a pick six in a win over Timnith 21-3. This was Prospect Ridge's first win of the season and a massive performance from Chase Schaefer here. As for other 2A action, it's going to be hard to talk about this without talking about Tyler Maloney. I do talk about him in the words of Gideon who, you know, Tyler Maloney, he is in talks with some college coaches, but he had three touchdowns and almost 200 yards in a win over Valley, a one-point win 
over Valley, might I add, that was just an absolutely absurd performance. In other 2A action, Delta did have to play a 3A Palisade squad without their starting quarterback, Ty Reed. And who steps up here? Well, in my opinion, I think most of all, it was Talon Hewlett, who had 21 tackles, a sack, a pass deflection in their 31-20 win over 3A Palisade. Speaking of 3A, we have some nominees here from 3A. The first one here I'm going to talk about is Zayden Stevens in a win over La Hunta for you know, this Pueblo East squad, he did throw the ball very well. Eight of 13, three touchdowns, no interceptions, probably his career high in QBR at a 145, and he tacked on another 37 yards on the ground. In other news, you know, for Lutheran, they should beat Discovery Canyon here, but it's still worthy, worthy talking about Riken Dagard here. I believe is that how you say it. If that's not, then please correct me. But I mean, he puts up a nearly perfect game going 13 of 17 for 269 yards, four passing touchdowns and a rushing touchdown in a 50 to nothing win over potentially another 3A playoff team in Discovery Canyon. And then last but not least here from Severance, I'm going to be highlighting Gage Bachman here, 17 carries, 115 yards, two scores, three receptions, 57 yards, two scores, one interception, forced fumble, recovery, 17 return yards, and a conversion totaling up for 26 total points and 189 scrimmage yards in a big time win over Meade as Severance topples them 37 to 27. On the 4A level, there were some big time running backs here going crazy. You have Jaden Thomas of Windsor toting the ball 25 times for 371 yards and four touchdowns in a win over Fort Collins, 27-21. I'm also gonna be looking at Blake Bronham here for Ponderosa. 10 tackles, one sack, one hurry, and an interception in a massive statement win as Ponderosa bypasses Golden 56 to seven. And then the other running back here I'm gonna be talking about is Liberty's very own Chris Hunter. This junior back, boy, was he asked to do a lot as he got handed the ball off 45 times, showing incredible durability, but also efficiency, averaging 6.8 yards per carry, and totaling at 306 total yards and a score. So not just one, but two 300 plus yard rushers in week three here. That is, that's insane. I'm just going to put that out there. And then in 5A, I only have two Playmaker of the Week candidates here. The first one I'm going to be talking about is Brian Dijkstra here. He had four punt returns for 104 yards and a score. And then on top of that, three rushes for 61 yards and a score, including a long of 51 in North Glen's Crosstown rivalry win over Thornton, 52 to 14. And then the last guy I have here is Diano Benayo. I want to say, say is how you say it, or Benalo. Pardon me if I'm saying it wrong. But boy, this guy turned up for Rouston Valley when they absolutely needed it the most. I mean... Look, Ralston Valley here was down, was up, and then they were down, and then they were up, and then they were down here, and they outlasted Grandview for a win, and Benalo is a huge part of that. 15 tackles on the defensive side of the ball, and then on offense, on a very wet night, he was very solid on the ground, toting the ball for 13 carries, 153 yards, and a score in a massive top 10 win over Grandview. So, let's go ahead and just go from 5A down to 1A as far as who our winners are here. For 5A, my playmaker of the week, Diano Bonalo. Look, the quality of this win is massive. Both these teams were top 10 teams 
and this was an absolute back and forth game and Bonalo stepped up on not just one but both sides of the ball which is a little bit more rare I feel on the 5A level where teams have more depth to potentially platoon and uh, Diano here steps up big time giving Jared Yanacito his biggest win so far as a coach in 5A I would say and uh, you know providing some stability and assurance that Rawson Valley will be able to run the ball come you know November if there's any snow and whatnot now on the 4A level I don't know I was trying my best to hide my excitement for this and I think I did a good job but really Jaden Thomas's performance over Fort Collins is one of the most dominant performances that we will probably see all year in Colorado high school football I mean good lord 371 yards all full all four of Windsor scores in a 27 to 21 win over Fort Collins and I at first I didn't believe it. at first I was like no way he ran for 371 yards that's ludicrous and then I watched the film and boy it just looked like the Fort Collins defense was moving in slow motion compared to Jaden Thomas whose lateral quickness and agility was just way too much as he could zip and zap and dart through every single possible imaginable hole he did a great job of utilizing his blockers downfield and his vision was just at a 10 honestly on this night against Fort Collins your playmaker of the week on the 4A level Jaden Thomas 25 for 371 371 yards can you believe that 371 Ugh. rip to headphone users I'm sorry but I literally can't 371 that's so insane to me I can't I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. So Jaden Thomas, thanks for breaking one of the hosts of Playmakers Corner. I will literally never mentally recover from how dominant of a performance that was. Unless you do it again in the playoffs and then just completely melt my brain. But on the 3A level, I'm going to go ahead and give it to the biggest matchup here, in my opinion here. As Severance does beat Need, this will push them back into that top 10 conversation. And Gage Bachman is crucial for that 26 of this team's 37 total points I mean for an individual player to be doing that on one side of the ball is one thing but also to be able to force turnovers on the defensive side of the ball is massive here so Gage Bachman for his performance as an offensive player primarily he probably could have won this with just offense but he definitely cements it with what he was able to do on the defensive side of the ball and speaking of defense, you know, it said that defense wins championships and, you know, defense was a part of this, what I would call an upset win here for Delta High School as Taylor Hewlett, like I said, just does it all for this Delta defense that locks down this very potent 3A Palisade offense to only 20 points and does so while, you know, Delta is looking for guys to step up. Obviously, you know, their backup quarterback did not do too shabby of a job. This offense was still pretty efficient here. Or, you know, as a unit, this Delta team still puts up 31 points. And uh, But I think that the quality of the win and the circumstances surrounding Ty Reed's injury makes this all the more impressive. And then as far as scale of game, we're kind of using the same logic here as we did on the 3 and 5A levels. Look. Strasburg and Lyman was hyped up to be the best game in 1A all week. It was a power matchup between two very strong 1A teams. And on a night where, like I said in that recap, Lyman did not run the ball very well. Jordan Rockwell stepped up absolutely massive. And, you know, prior to this, I would say that Jordan Rockwell was probably the biggest question mark on this Badger squad. And he put any doubts to rest here in that 8 of 9 
two touchdown, no interception performance. And, you know, that long run to really put the final nail in the coffin shows that he also has the big playability to do it himself. He's going to be an awesome dual threat quarterback for these next two years at Lyman, seeing as how he is only a junior. And, I mean, he's just so fundamentally sound. Huge shout out to that Lyman coaching staff who, I mean, all their coaching staff from what I could collect are former college guys in some capacity. And it shows when your quarterback on the 1A level, who's, you know, only been a starter for three weeks now, is able to roll out left as a right-handed quarterback, plant his feet, flip his hips, flip his shoulders, and then still drive the ball and put just enough touch on it to float it over linebackers at times and deliver great strikes. And then, you know, his pass down the right sideline to Logan Botcher was in a place where Logan could make a play on it. And his understanding of his teammates and, you know, just his technique is very beautiful and is pretty to watch. So that is why Jordan Rockwell is going to be my 1A Playmaker of the Week. And that will do it for our Playmakers of the Week. Just to run through it one more time, Jordan Rockwell of Lyman on the 1A level, Taylor Hewlett from Delta on the 2A level, on the 3A level, Gage Bachman of Severance, on the 4A level, Jaden Thomas of Windsor, and on the 5A level, Diano Bonallo of the Ralston Valley Mustangs. Thanks for tuning in to Playmakers of the Week. And up next, the segment that seems to make everyone the most upset, we are going to be talking power rankings, PMC power rankings, as decided by Simon and I. Once again, the way that this works is Simon and I put our teams in order 1 through 10, and then there is a composite score. Look, if you're number 1, you get 10 points. If you're number 2, 9 points, so on and so forth, until there is a top 10 here. Obviously, there are some ties when we combine the two scores of ours, but that is how we decide our power rankings. As for the power rankings, we're going to work our way from 5A down to 1A. And so let's go ahead and jump into it. Look, at the top of 5A here, to probably no one's surprise, we got Cherry Creek here at number one. Look, they beat Chatfield 28-5, to and they had a good bounce-back win uh, against the 4A state champions. And look, their competition against um, that team in Ohio was a very good one. They almost won that game, honestly, against one of the best teams in the nation. So that's why they remain here despite a 2-1 record. Now, Regis here, they're at number two. They took care of business. Um, they also lost out of state, but we didn't really punish them too much for that since it was an out of state game. That is a quality loss in our eyes. And they beat another, you know, at least ranked by Chassa 5A squad in Arapahoe 23-10. And they remain at this number two spot. Now, I've been having Columbine here at number three. And Simon said that they climb in my personal rankings and take over Grandview since they lost. Uh, Columbine smashed Cherokee Trail and is low-key a team that can continue to climb week by week, but because of their schedule, they'll need other teams to lose. So they are at tied for third here, the Columbine Rebels, and they are tied with Valor Christian. Valor, who I have at number four, and Simon has a little bit higher. They continue to improve as the season goes on and finish this game with a dominant second half against a talented Fairview team, 38-15. They do get a very quality win against a quality opponent in our eyes uh, over Fairview, who was a top 10 ranked team for us. So they will remain here in the top three, tied at three. Now at number five, I had Ralston Valley, and it looks like Simon echoed my sentiment here. And in Simon's words, they get a huge win over Grandview 33-21, where they really took it. Um, for that, they earn a spot here in the top five. Their only loss was a two-score loss to Cherry Creek, and they will get to play all the teams I have in front of them, including Regis next Thursday, Valor the following Friday, and then Columbine. If they keep winning, they'll keep moving up. Ralston Valley, obviously, you know, 
brand new coach in Jared Yonacito, but it looks like much of the same as far as program success goes. They run the ball very well. Obviously, I crowned Diano my playmaker of the week in 5A. And, you know, when Rouse Valley gets such a big win over a quality opponent who was, you know, in our top fives here in Grandview, that will catapult them up quite a bit. Now, at number six, I personally had Thunder Ridge, but here in our overall PMC rankings, Simon has Pine Creek. We will keep Pine Creek here at six as they had a good win over Vista Ridge, but they'll need to keep it going. They do have Regis on Saturday, October 8th, and that should be a big game to look out for. Now, at seven is where I add Pine Creek. We have Thunder Ridge here at seven. They blew out Lakewood as they should, and that's good. Uh, the only reason why Simon has Thunder Ridge moving down is because Ralston Valley moved up after defeating Grandview. Their point total here is at eight. Now, Grandview here at eight for both Simon and I. Simon is quoted as saying, quote, they lost a winnable game against Grand, uh, against Ralston Valley, and for that, they drop a couple spots. They need to finish games against quality teams like this, and their next chance to face a top 10 team is not till the end of the season against Cherry Creek. So Grandview here, for me, it will probably take some losing of teams in front of them for them to potentially move up. But, I mean, they were winning this game at one point. It was wet out. It was, you know, not ideal passing conditions but they still need to win games against good teams like Ralston Valley in order to remain. Um, and they're going to have to keep winning, honestly, to remain in the top 10. Uh, another loss, and they could potentially slip a little bit more. But at number nine, Simon and I are in agreement here. Rock Canyon here. Uh, Simon quoted as saying, they take care of business yet again, 37-15 over Denver East. The only reason uh, they Simon has them moving down, I kept them at nine here, uh, is because Ralston Valley jumped up so much. And then Simon put, they unfortunately don't have many top 10 matchups this season. They do have Valor and Thunder Ridge here at the end of their season. Rock Canyon, by the way, it's worth noting that they are 9-0 as a program, having not lost a single game on the varsity, junior varsity, or freshman level of football. That is awesome that they have a clean sweep this far, and they're going to have to continue to be dominant on both sides of the ball to keep that going. They run the ball very well. They're very tough. They're very solid up front, honestly, on both sides of the football, and that is what is allowing them to be able to win at such a convincing rate. Now, at number 10, we both have Fairview here. Simon said, I'm not ready to move them outside the top 10. They played Valor close, and it was a competitive game that they could have won. Unfortunately, they don't play another top 10 team at all this season, so there won't be opportunities in their control for them to continue to move up, really. So a lot of teams here getting past a lot of those big, you know, non-league games before heading into the tougher part of their schedule. We have some teams that are just outside the top 10 for sure that will be knocking on the door. We just don't believe in their, you know, strength of competition here. Eagle Crest is one that comes to mind where they just haven't faced a team with a winning record yet, I don't think. And yeah, no, they haven't because they've played Brighton and Horizon and um, the other team is Highlands Ranch. Another one is Legend here. Once again, just not a very high win percentage amongst the teams that they have faced. But both of those 3-0 teams will be moving up if any of these teams slip up here. And there's a handful of other teams that are also doing really good in this first third of the season and are just outside and almost breaking in. You will start to see some of those teams start to break in should they maintain an unblemished record against some stronger competition. And once we get into league play, things will start to really get interesting. Now, on the 4A level here, at number one, we both have Palmer Ridge here. 
You know, they stay number one after hammering their crosstown rivals for the... Simon says X, but I don't know if he meant to say 10th straight year. They'll get a challenge with Smokey Hill, who's a decent 518 before facing off with Ponderosa, who is right on their tail. And speaking of Ponderosa, Simon and I both have Ponderosa here at two. Gonna read Simon's spot here. Quote, this team is on fire. A number of losses from teams ahead of them, as well as wins, propelled them up to number two in 4A with a chance to take on the number one team here in two weeks. This defense thrashed Golden and will set their sights on a legend team that hasn't faced a defense of this calendar, uh, of this caliber. And I'm going to go ahead and speak on Ponderosa. Look, I saw them for the first time on Saturday against Golden, and they just rinsed this Golden team. They were very dominant on both sides of the ball. Zach Stryker has been absolutely absurd this season and is putting in work to be a top five senior quarterback candidate for sure. He runs the ball very well. Was able to see him connect on a few passes. Max Mervin is back after that first week having concussion, and they were still able to be Erie, who we did have at number one. So Ponderosa all the way up here at two. I don't really see, well, this will be a big game uh, in the you know battle for Parker here against Legend. And, you know, this game could impact both these teams, but if it's really close, you know, I think it could go either way. And then obviously they have the game against Palmer Ridge. Look, if, and following that, they even have Denver South. So Ponderosa with one of the toughest schedules to start the year. Look, Golden's a solid team and one that might be sneaking into the playoffs potentially. And they just absolutely just whooped them. And then, you know, they already beat Erie, who we had at number one, right? So they have quality wins thus far in the season. And they're going to continue to play quality opponents. And they, you know, barring any crazy things happening, will probably continue to be a top five team. At number three. I had Denver South. Simon had Fruit of Monument. So we got two teams at number three here. Fruit of Monument and Denver South. Look, Simon is quoted saying, quote, they are not getting the respect they deserve, but they should. I had them ranked ahead of Denver South in my personal rankings last week, and so they stay ahead of South for now. They pull a difficult matchup against Grandview this week, so we will see what happens. Look, they just dominated a team that was in our top 10. Look, Skyline started the season in our top 10, and they absolutely put it to them 35 to nothing. And I'm pretty sure that was in Skyline. So they had a long bus ride. They've already proved themselves with a big win against Montrose as well last week. This team is red hot right now. And they are continuing to play very sound football. And they just continue to get better every single week, I think. And that's what makes Fruit of Monument so scary. Now, another team that I think has just been very dominant is Denver South. Look, Simon is quoted as saying, quote, they got in a track meet with Longmont, but ultimately still dropped 58 points in one. As other teams lose and they continue to win, they will move up. Also keep an eye out, but they pull Ponderosa here in a couple weeks. That'll be a huge matchup, and that's the one that I'm looking forward to. Look, until Denver South loses, I'm going to have them here at three. I was very high on them entering the season with all their returning talent, and they have proven that time and time again. Joseph Capra has been one of the most dominant quarterbacks in Colorado football and is making a very strong case for the two or three senior spot. Just understanding the game very well as both a passer and a rusher. And this defense has been able to force a lot of turnovers this year as well. At number five, Simon and I are in agreement. West, Pueblo West that is. Simon is quoted, quote, I have West dropping three spots after getting shut out by a Fountain Fort Carson team that I said for sure would be a trap game. They get a bye week, but a true contender cannot allow a shutout to ever happen with the amount of talent on this offense, end quote. And I'm going to have to agree with that. Look. I wouldn't blame Pueblo West or really even drop them too much here. They'd still probably be at three if they lost by like maybe a score, but 40 to nothing is an absolute rinsing that 
you know, if you want to end up in the state game, even if it's against a 518, look, Found Four Carson was in 4A last year, right? And I think that, like, the talent gap isn't big enough to warrant the absolute drubbing that was at the hands of that. So, Pueblo West, hoping that it was just, you know, a lapse in preparation or maybe estimation of their opponent. Hopefully it was just that and nothing more. So going to keep them here for now and see if they can bounce back following their bye week. Now tied up number six are two teams here. Look, uh, I'm still high on Loveland. I still have them at number six. And Simon's quote, I'm not killing Loveland for not playing a better team, but they took care of business against Pomona and I'll accept that. In my personal rankings, they only moved down because I'm moving up Ponderosa. I already had Ponderosa ahead of Loveland, so no difference for me here. I've been high on this Loveland team. They finally get, you know, a big time dominant win against like a 5A program. And I think that that's going to be good for their strength of schedule heading forward and for their confidence. Now, tied at six here. I personally had Dakota Ridge at eight. Simon is going to put them here uh, just a little bit ahead. And is quoted as saying, they stay here after getting their first win of the season against a quality Mesa Ridge team. They moved down one spot in my personal rankings, but that's only because I moved up a couple teams. So get it here, Dakota Ridge. Obviously getting in the win column is massive for them being in the top 10. They have faced two very tough teams in the first weeks against Pueblo West and Columbine. And then they get an absolute drubbing of Mesa Ridge here, putting up a ton of points and Blake Palladino finally looking like he's rounding into form. Now here at number eight, I personally had Broomfield at seven, but uh, Simon is quoted, quote, Broomfield has taken care of business, has grinded to a 3-0 start, not allowing more than two touchdowns yet on defense. That may change against a tough Erie team. They haven't played a top 10 team yet, but Erie will be their first, followed by Dakota Ridge and eventually Fruita Monument down the road. For now, in my personal rankings, they stay here. Look, Broomfield, these are games last year that they potentially could have lost. I think that experience and stability on the offensive line and also in Cola Cruz poise has been fantastic. They're getting young guys into the rotation as well. So I think that they're going to be very deep heading into the playoffs with some guys getting a ton of varsity experience already. And I wouldn't say that the teams that they have played so far aren't the worst teams in the world. So I think it's good that they've built up a lot of confidence and I will be attending that Broomfield versus Erie game. And speaking of Erie, we have them here at number nine. Look, Erie lost to Montrose 49 to 40 at home and they need to get it together. It's been a rough go for Erie as they've played some quality teams here, but for now they are sitting at one and two and will be playing a Broomfield team who has had a strong start to their season. Look, I personally had Erie at number 10, honestly, and I was going to have Montrose ahead of them because they both have the same record and Montrose has beaten them. So I'm giving them a little bit of grace here because they just have had a rough schedule and they have been very competitive against very good teams, I think. But their one win against Mullen, I don't know if I'm necessarily super convinced on that and will be taking a lot of notes on this upcoming matchup between them and the team ranked ahead of them in Broomfield. Montrose, look, quote, this team finds their way in my personal rankings for the first time this year, but they've had a heck of a first three games, losing to Palmer Ridge by seven, then losing to Fruita by 16, and then they beat Erie 49 to 40. There's definitely an argument to move them up higher for pure strength of schedule, but they'll need a better record of one and two for them to move any higher. Plus, there are a couple other teams I could have put here. I had Montrose at nine, Simon has them at 10. They break here at number 10 pretty closely. And I think it's obvious that that Fruit of Monument lost by 16 is definitely what's hampering them the most here. If they were able to play that Fruit of Monument team a little bit closer, then I think that Montrose would have for sure been number nine. But Erie has just been a little bit closer in our eyes in their first three games than Montrose necessarily has. So that is why Montrose sits here at number 10. So just as a quick recap in 5A and 4A, 5A, Creek, Regis, Columbine, and Valor tied at three, Ralston Valley, Pine Creek, 
Thunder Ridge, Grandview, Rock Canyon, Fairview. Now, for 4A, it was Palmer Ridge, Ponderosa, Fruita Monument, and Denver South tied at three. Pueblo West, five. Tied at six is Loveland and Dakota Ridge. Then Broomfield at eight, Erie nine, Montrose 10. Talking 3A football here. We are going to keep Roosevelt here at number one. Simon's excerpt here is, quote, they are also undefeated with a 49-0 shutout of rival Fort Morgan. They are two in my personal rankings, but to be honest, if they beat 5A Highlands Ranch, I'd move them to one since that's a quality 5A group. I've had Roosevelt at number one since the preseason, so as they continue to run win, including a massive win over, you know, crosstown rival Fort Morgan that is one of the best rivalries in Colorado, yeah, you're going to remain at number one for me. Now, Simon has Green Mountain, and we have Green Mountain at number two here. He says, good W against Mountain View. They stay undefeated and right here at number one in my personal rankings. Now, I have Green Mountain at number three. Average that out, puts him right at two. At number three in our PMC rankings, we have Northridge. I personally have Northridge at two. I've had him at two since the beginning of the season. And Northridge here, quote, a 63-8 beatdown of Greeley Central to improve to 3-0 keeps them here. For me, they don't move up until somebody in front of them loses or until they play Roosevelt and potentially win. So basically, Simon and I's preseason, you know, standings are still carrying a lot of weight up until week three here on the 3A level. But then we start to really see eye-to-eye here. Lutheran at four, Simon put, they smashed, you know, Discovery Canyon uh, 50-0 and completely shut out a team that definitely has offensive talent and they improved to two and one. For now, they stay here, but they pull an interesting matchup against the Pueblo East team that has been on the rise and is currently undefeated. Simon will be there. I personally have Lutheran here at four. Obviously, that big win against Meade in week two was massive for them. And then this week, I mean, I had their quarterback as a playmaker of the week candidate. So that bodes very well for the Lions here and is why I'm going to have them at number four despite their week one loss to an out-of-state team. That's a very solid Lutheran team that they did host. So I'm not going to hold that against them too much. At number five, we both have Durango here. Uh, Simon put, quote, they moved to two and one and stay right here at five in my personal rankings. After a 55-0 blowout of Aztec, they pull a solid 4A Grand Junction Central this week on the road. I've had Durango here at five. I think that, you know, what they're doing is consistent. And, you know, I think that they're getting a little bit better every week. Obviously, getting that win over Farmington, I think, was a massive deal. And, you know, they're finally getting into, like, a rhythm, I guess, is what I would say. And this is going to be a very polished team, I think, by the time we get later into the year. At number six, there is a tie here between two teams here, Pueblo East and Evergreen. I personally had Evergreen six and Pueblo East seven. Simon has these teams swapped. But Simon's excerpt on Pueblo East, quote, they keep winning and improve to 3-0 after beating a very good 2A La Junta team. They host Lutheran this week, which should be a good test. Now, Pueblo East, for me, they obviously, you know, this was another team that had a playmaker of the week kind of guy here and in Zayden Stevens. And so, you know, with that notoriety, they do have their biggest challenge of the season. And this is their time to prove that, you know, they didn't start this season in the top 10, but this is their time to prove that they belong here in the top 10 if they can put up a good performance against this Lutheran team that is a top five squad. Now for Evergreen here, Simon has, quote, they beat Eagle Valley and bounced back. The only reason I moved them down in my personal rankings is because I'm moving up a team that has beat a better quality opponent and is undefeated. 
So that's Simon talking about Pueblo East being a little bit ahead. I have Evergreen at six. I don't really mind these teams being tied for six, honestly. Evergreen will have a chance to prove themselves on the 6th of October, a day after my birthday, when they do face Green Mountain in Lakewood against Green Mountain at home. That'll be their time to try and push back into the top five, but until then, they will need people ahead of them to lose. At number eight, we got Rez Christian here. They win another one. They are currently undefeated. I personally had them at nine, but I don't mind them at you know a higher spot here at that eighth spot uh technically so yeah res christian they're undefeated and uh once they get a good quality win here i think that they'll be sitting a little bit better at number nine i had severance at 10 but here they are at number nine simon says quote after a brief drop out of the top 10 they return after a huge bounce back 37 27 win against a very good mead, mead team they play a tough Eaton team this next week and then Evergreen after that, so we will see how it goes down. Now, Severance here, they also, 3A, boy, top 10 teams produce Playmaker of the Week caliber talent, don't they? But Gage Bachman was my Playmaker of the Week because he showed up, and so did the rest of this team. This was a definitely a team effort beating a Mead team that was in our top 10. So Severance essentially takes their place here with that win. And then at number nine, we got Holy Family also tied with Severance, and that rounds out our top 10. Holy Family had a bye week, didn't want to push them out for not playing. As for 2A, not too much changing here. Look, uh, TCA, they remain at number one for both Simon and I, especially after they get a huge win over, you know, a former top 10 power ranked team in Alamosa, 42 to 14. At number two, Eaton. One and two and three all remain the same here. Uh, Eaton won big against Platte Valley. And then Delta, I think Delta's win is the most impressive as evidenced by my pick for Playmaker of the Week in Talon here because they were down Ty Reed and beat a 3A Palisade squad that was in the playoffs last year. And, you know, this Palisade squad, they are in a very bad situation. I'm not even going to mince words here. But, uh, yeah, that win for Delta is fantastic. For, for Delta to stay afloat. Now, the Academy comes here at number four. They took down a top 10 team in Elizabeth, beating them 28 to seven. Simon says, quote, this is a good enough quality win for me to move them up past Florence in my personal rankings. I had the Academy ahead of Florence personally already, but no matter because Florence is right here at, well, actually, they're not right here at number five. I'm, I'm capping. I have Florence at number five and in our PMC rankings, we have La Junta at number five. Simon says, quote, they lost to a very good 3A team in Pueblo East, so I'll keep them here in my personal rankings for now. That game was one of the few games I had them losing this season. So Simon is basically saying it's up to expectations and no worries here. And then Florence here at PMC's number six spot, they, quote, beat Pagosa Springs in a close 22-19, but definitely a scare against a team that has not won a game this season. So for now, for that, I'm moving up one team ahead of them in my personal rankings. I had Florence at five because I had them ahead of Hunta, but it's no worries there. Basalt here at number seven. This is where we just basically match teeth for teeth here. Basalt here at seven. They are 3-0 undefeated. They destroyed Roaring Fork, and they, you know, will continue to just obliterate here and stick around in these Intel teams ahead of them lose to less quality opponents. Eight, Moffat County here. We match on this one. They beat Bayfield, so they move up slightly from where they were. But honestly, this is not a win that I think you should be as proud of winning that closely. So Moffat County, I'm a little bit worried about them here on the 2A level. Then 
Tied for ninth place is Elizabeth and Platte Valley, but Platte Valley lost big to Eaton, so that's why I had them at nine, and Elizabeth lost a little bit closer to the Academy, which is at four, so both these teams losing to top 10 teams is not going to kick them out of the top 10. So, as a recap for 2A PMC Power Rankings, we have at nine for a tie, Elizabeth and Platte Valley, at eight, Moffat County, at seven, Basalt, at six, Florence, five, La Junta, four, the Academy, three, Delta, two, Eaton, one, TCA. And those are your 2A power rankings. And as for 1A, this is probably going to be the easiest one to run through. Lyman at one, Buena Vista and Ray are tied at two here. I personally had Buena Vista, then Strasburg. Ray, they faced a really good Scott City team from Kansas that is currently undefeated and has high praise from Lyman. So that buys them their spot here at two. Strasburg here at four. They do drop just a little bit after this game against Lyman. I think that definitely getting goose egged influences this vote just a little bit here as they did struggle very mightily against the favorite, which that's why they're not any lower than that. But at a tie for fifth is Wiggins, who gets a bounce back win over Rocky Ford in a massive way. And Monte Vista, who barely survives a Gunnison team that isn't, they're not the best 1A team out there. So definitely a little bit of a surprise after a win over Colorado Springs Christian High School. At number seven here is Centauri, who just barely loses to a very solid Buena Vista squad. At eight, we have Yuma, who breaks into the top 10 and takes Banning Lewis Academy spot here with just an absolute throttling of them, dominating on all sides of the ball. I talked about it a little bit in the recaps. Yuma definitely deserves to be in this top 10 convo. At number nine, we have Meeker here. That's an agreement. And at number 10, just barely squeaking in, Colorado Springs Christian High School. So that is our 1A. Not a whole lot to talk about there. Pretty straightforward. I mean, Lyman and Buena Vista uh, being one and two here. This will probably be decided and split a little bit later as these teams will play in Buena Vista. So that is a big deal here. And then, you know, Strasburg with the small dip. You heard that recap, take from that what you will. Uh, lots of L's in the top four, but against quality opponents, that'll keep you in the top four, where he is, you know, five and beyond. Wins against inferior teams outside of Centauri here, who loses to another top 10 team. There's just not really any other 1A teams that are screaming, I deserve to be in the top 10 quite yet. So until those teams outside prove that they should be on the inside, we will hold off on that. But that'll do it for this episode of Playmakers Corner Podcast here. Look, we got the power rankings. We got our Playmakers of the Week. If you ever think that somebody should be a submission to that, please don't feel free, or feel free, I should say, to submit any of those claims. But, you know, for all the updates on power rankings, please make sure that you are following us on Instagram at Playmakers Corner. We also will be posting those same updates on Playmakers Corner on Facebook. So go ahead and find us on there. That is where we've been getting an uptick and following recently. So please check us out there. On Twitter, we are at Playmaker Corner where we also post new episodes. And, you know, if you tag us in your highlights and you want to try and get, you know, like a little bit of promotion and awareness, you know, we're not like a business or a service in that sense, but we will take a look and we will retweet and support Colorado talent whenever and whenever we can. Um, in whatever way we possibly can, which for a simple retweet, 
takes us a few seconds just mention us and it's very very easy for us to try and show you know some of the scouts that do follow us right so no worries there on that stuff please do that follow us on all those we're also on tiktok posting highlights from games that we went to the previous weekend so be sure to stay tuned for all of that and we got more games coming up this week that we are very excited to check out so be on the lookout for us if you want to meet us or introduce us you know in a respectful manner please do approach us and we will talk it out we got some big rivalry games this week and we just got some big games in general this week on thursday i might be at the thunder ridge game here but that is to be determined whereas you know coach v on thursday will be attending a game here and it is going to be the game between pueblo east and lutheran like we talked about in the 3a power rankings that is a big time matchup i might catch the thunder ridge first chatfield game but it depends on when i get out of work on Friday, we got the Battle of the Rock, which Simon will be attending between Castleview and Douglas County. We had so much fun at the rivalry game last year. We're running it back this year. So look out for Coach V there. And then Broomfield versus Erie is on Friday. I will be at that game, a huge matchup between two of the best quarterbacks in the state of Colorado, especially a massive for a matchup here. And then on Saturday, Simon will be at Banning Lewis Academy versus Bennett down in the Springs. And I will be attending Denver North versus Northfield to check out this new kid on the block in 3A who's been tearing things up and is currently undefeated and to check out the quarterback for Denver North. And, you know, both these squads and promote any of the players that we can. Really easy to promote you if, you know, you do follow us on Twitter. We try and record clips in the games and then try and either tweet your name or your mention or for simon's case he's more of an instagram guy so that's kind of how that divide works and you can tell who's at what game depending on who's doing that in addition to that gideon will be at the timnith versus wellington game for one you know up in that i mean it's the inaugural bowl uh between these two teams and will be you know the very first trophy uh game between these two programs and then i'm not sure on the 17th it says that he will try and be out to that Platte Valley versus Wiggins game at Platte Valley. So you could potentially find him there as well. Thank you so much for listening to Playmakers Corner Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts, including Anchor and Peace.